Hello, it's 12th of April 2020, and this is episode 137 of Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis, and commentary with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the series. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? It's been pretty good. Um, the most noteworthy thing for me has definitely been the gorgeous, gorgeous cover for the um, Shakespearean adaptation <laughs> of The Rise of Skywalker, <laughs> which is probably the most Raylotastic officially licensed imagery I've seen, like with the potential exception of that bridal carry artwork from The Force Awakens era, which was still a great time to be a Raylo fan <laughs> in this fandom. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I'm just looking at that right now and it's like they're back to back. They both have these amazing like Tudor style variants on their actual costumes that I would love to see people cosplay and yeah, it's just pretty badass. How about you, Kirsty? I was going to say it is beautiful, but what struck me about it when I first saw it was that it kind of seems like imagery inspired more by The Last Jedi than The Rise of Skywalker. Mm. Than being back to back like that. Yeah. No, you're right. That is a very good observation. I guess they're probably leading more into the whole like love story thing that we explicitly get in The Rise of Skywalker by mm. having that front and centre. Um, but yeah, you're right. It perhaps might be a more appropriate last year I cover. <laughs> and also another nice detail is that they also have um, little figures underneath the big ones. And so you have a little Leia on Kylo's side and then little Palpatine on Rey's side. <laughs> and I know that's a traumatic reminder of Rey's, unfortunately, canonical heritage at this point. But right. I do also appreciate the Shakespearean stuff going on with lovers from two rival houses because I'm sure that's going to be milked to the end of the world and back. Yeah, and we I think we've talked about it, that we would have been all on board for Ray Palpatine had that been kind of the theme and story from the beginning, that these yeah. two people were from opposing houses that were entwined throughout the generations and, you know, that that could have been really great. Yeah. Alas. No. In the words of Shakespeare, alas. <laughs> Alack, Kirsty. Alack. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. Alas is perfectly legitimate. I believe he also used alas. Um, but yeah, no, like there are definitely redeeming qualities of Ray Palpatine as it's treated on this cover and in fan fiction. So I'm going to like make a concerted effort to say nice things today. So yeah. <laughs> that's my nice thing to say about Ray Palpatine. <laughs> I was thinking that this might end up being the Rise of Skywalker adaptation that I do buy. Mm, because I, yeah. I, like you, I do think that there's potential here for them to really Shakespeare it up and make it epic. Yeah. yeah, And they're, and they're usually a lot of fun, these books are. So. Exactly, yeah. And I've been saying to Kirsty that I just really want that like emotional soliloquy from Ray, where she's sort of like mourning her lost love. Which the film didn't give us. <laughs> I was going to say, sure would be nice to have some acknowledgement. Yeah, but there's every opportunity in this for that to happen. And the author has done similar things with characters delivering long, introspective speeches at times that they definitely did not in the film. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I would say the chances are quite high, but we'll see. I won't bet the horse on it. We'll see. Um, I have another book recommendation well, not that that was a book recommendation because we haven't read The Merry <laughs> Rise of Skywalker yet, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this week I read I Am C-3PO, The Inside Story by Anthony Daniels. Ooh. And I really enjoyed it. 
way more than I thought I would. Sorry if that sounds bad. It's not meant to be a backhanded compliment. I just went into it kind of thinking that it'd be sort of fluffy because it was kind of tied into the Rise of Skywalker being released. Um, but he was refreshingly honest about all of his experiences uh, performing this role. Um, he went right back to the beginning, obviously, with A New Hope, what it was like to film that movie and meet all the other stars and George and everything. And he was pretty honest about um, how he felt after that movie was released and how the other stars were being celebrated and kind of catapulted into that stardom. But he wasn't because he said it almost felt like Lucasfilm were trying to present it as if C-3PO was a real robot (laughs) and there wasn't an actor inside him. Um, So he kind of got shoved to the side or at least he felt that way and it was actually kind of sad to read. Mm. Um, But... Everyone knows Anthony Daniels has been involved in so many Star Wars projects over the years. He's been in all of the saga films, obviously. He was in Rogue One and Solo, not as 3PO, but... Um, and he was in, he's been in Clone Wars, the Droids cartoon. He was in the Holiday Special. Uh, he did the Christmas in the Stars album. <laughs> <laughs> he's done so much. And he goes through all of those things, talks about all of his experiences, um, all of that kind of Hollywoody. Um, events that he went to as a result of kind of joining this universe um and it is really nice it's really charming and and when you get to the end obviously he's talking more about the rise of skywalker and he genuinely seems so happy for 3po to kind of have more of a spotlight and he's definitely a highlight of the movie for me yeah no he's really good in that film so yeah Yeah. like i'm really glad to hear that about that book um because oh yeah yeah. i hadn't tried it out i think for the reasons you indicated i just expected it to be a bit of a fluff piece but it definitely sounds more interesting than that yeah he's not afraid to give his honest opinion about things um he does not seem a fan of the prequels um i think partly down to kind of the choices that were made around 3po and he's pretty protective of the role but um he he was not very complimentary about the phantom menace unfortunately oh damn Um, yeah also he said that apparently he was the one who had to break it to ray park that his voice was going to be dubbed over what yeah he's talking about (laughs) it and he says that nobody at lucasfilm was going to tell him before the movie came out so (gasps) he ended up telling him (gasps) that's awful oh my god i know he's very vague about certain things and i think it's probably the best choice but some of the things he talks about, like, um, he mentioned bullying on the set of um, Attack of the Clones. So he doesn't name names, but he's talking about the cast and crew being kind of bullied and not respected. And Oh, wow. That's yeah. horrible. God. So, yeah, it's kind of juicy, but yeah, I think he's careful where it counts in terms of not naming people. But uh, he talks about um, his sadness over certain 3PO scenes being cut, like when Padme was helping him put his pieces together in the prequels that he's kind of all put together again. Um, Yeah, he even said that he did not like the moment in Rogue One when Leia turns around. Mm. He didn't think that that was too great. He kind of hoped that she would just keep her back to the audience, so... Wow, really no holds barred then. Yeah! So it's it's kind of interesting to read like that. I really did just think he was going to be like, yeah, everything was wonderful. Um, The one thing that actually made me quite sad towards the end was regarding the sequel trilogy he said that he and he he admitted that he regretted this 
he'd kind of gone down this rabbit hole of watching YouTube videos about The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. Oh no! Oh god, that's a horrifying thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it just kind of makes me sad because, again, it's kind of echoing, and we're going to talk about this a little later with some of the recent comments from the Rise of Skywalker editor, but... Um, it made me sad because he was talking about how the loyal fans felt let down by the sequel trilogy. And it's just like, hello, we're all right here. We love the sequel trilogy and these mm. characters. Yeah, I do think that's symptomatic, unfortunately, of the voices of female fans just not generating that clickbait appeal, you know. Like, the truth is that there are amazing, like, women out there producing content and putting it on YouTube, which is the same platform that Anthony Daniels would have been going on to. But the people who are passionately positive and effusive about the sequel trilogy, those videos might get, like, a few thousand hits at best. Whereas the ones that are, like, fizzing with rage and anger about it, they would get hundreds of thousands of hits. So, unfortunately, those are going to be the ones that are seen. And I'm personally very interested to see how fandom evolves over like the next 10 years or so. Because, yeah, there is a generation of kids who are going to be the ones who are the main cheerleaders for the sequel trilogy. And they're going to be very passionately defending it. So I want to see their YouTube videos. <laughs> let's put it that way. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So let's transition into the news. Um, so the first thing we want to discuss is that a new writer has been announced for the Obi-Wan TV series... Um, would you care to read out just the first two paragraphs I've highlighted, Kirsty? Uh, sure. It says, Joby Harold has been tapped to write the op- upcoming Obi-Wan Kenobi series at Disney+. Variety has learned exclusively from sources. Harold takes over writing the highly anticipated series from Hussein Amini, who left the project back in January. This would mark Harold's first time writing for a te- television series. He most recently executive produced John Wick, Chapter 3, Parabellum, and is also writing the script for Zack Snyder's film Army of the Dead. He was one of two writers, alongside James Vanderbilt, who was selected to develop a new take on the Transformers franchise for Paramount. I don't have very extensive thoughts about this, because I haven't seen anything that this guy has worked on. He may be great, um, and really, it just it just has to be a wait-and-see situation, you know? Like, I'll judge how good a job he's done when we see if we see the episodes that he has written (laughs) basically excuse my caution but with all the creative changes that keep on happening with all these projects you can't guarantee that we're going to see the skyscripts i mean i think that's fair because this in itself is a change in creative yeah and i didn't they say at d23 last year that the scripts were written and they loved them and everything was fabulous yeah i think there was lots of like hype coming from ewan like saying how he thought the scripts were amazing and it's like well why are you getting rid of these amazing scripts i swear kathleen kennedy said that as well maybe not it's all a yeah. bit enough, but it's very weird i can't remember if we had any reports on why hussein amini left the project i think we did at the time but i can't remember the reason that was given i don't remember i i just remember being excited about him being the writer um because he wrote drive and i love that movie yeah but, um yeah i i don't know i don't know what to say to be honest about you know having the first persian star wars writer replaced by another white guy who yeah. hasn't who hasn't written for tv before mm. we must note yeah. um so, you know, he's attached to these other big projects, like Zack Snyder's a big deal and Transformers and all that, but 
Those things Sorry. don't. I know. Those things also don't sound super. Maybe I have a different idea of who Obi Wan Kenobi is or could be for this kind of series. I was thinking of something kind of smaller and more intimate and character focused. Yeah. But these projects don't sound like that. So. No. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I'll definitely say that Hussein Amini's filmography had me much more excited for him to be involved than mm. this guy's filmography has me excited. And I, I always want to give everyone the best possible shot. You know, I want everyone to do a great job. And if someone's been given an opportunity like this, I want them to succeed. But yeah, Kirsty's right. That is not great optics to have this clearly very talented and capable writer from a minority background be replaced by someone who's decidedly not from a minority background. So yeah, it's a bit disappointing. Um, on a positive side, we do still have Deborah Chow at the helm as the director. Um, and yeah, I know, Kirsty, that you and I were very pleased that she was going to be at the helm of this. So oh, yeah. yeah, I really am looking forward to seeing what she does. And I'm keeping my fingers and toes crossed that she isn't replaced because, oh my God, if they replace her for white man, please no. I'm honestly not sure what is going to go on with all of these future projects, given the coronavirus and its effects on the film and the TV industry. Yeah, like, you that's know, a good I, point. I, I haven't looked into it in detail, but I saw something this week about Disney kind of releasing a rescheduling of all their future projects. And it, to me, a quick glance, it kind of looked like things had been pushed back six months. Right. Um, I think that is very optimistic right now. Yeah. Because not only do you have to market things, you have to make them and they can't make anything right now. Mm. so that they can write them because you can do that from home on a laptop but um i honestly i'm not sure what's going to happen i don't know what's going to happen with the next star wars movie i think things are going to be delayed way further than some people are anticipating right now yeah and that could have knock-on effects for who's available what can be scheduled for when so like you i would love to still see deborah chow working on this she was a real highlight for the mandalorian her work was exceptional but I don't know. I think there's going to be so much up in the air now. And it's, it's not going to be anyone's fault, but it'll be interesting to see the choices that come out of it. Yeah. No, I agree. That's like a really fascinating like variable at the moment because everything's just so uncertain. And yeah, at the moment, 2021, in terms of films, is only going to consist of films that have been delayed from 2020 because exactly. nothing's being made. <laughs> Right, exactly. So was it 2021 or 2022 that the next film had been set for? I think it was 2022. So say in an optimistic world that we're back to something like functional normality by the end of this year, Mm. they would in theory still be able to get something out for the end of 2022. But But I don't want them to rush it. (laughs) No, nor do I. Um, What I will say about this whole situation is that there's no excuse for these scripts to not be top-notch because (laughs) everyone has plenty of time to be working on them. So, yeah. I hope all the screenwriters take that very seriously. I don't know. It depends on individual circumstances. and. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Like, I was being facetious, but you know what I mean. But yes and no, because some people have tons of time and some people don't have any time. So everything is so weird right now that even talking about future entertainment news like this is so like well who can say yep um even this guy it might not work out because they could have announced that he was working on them and then suddenly something comes up and he's not available or you know so 
we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. Exactly. Time will tell. Um, and okay, then the next thing that I just wanted to talk about is that we have some character descriptions that have been released for Project Luminous. Are we going to keep t- calling it Project Luminous? <laughs> That's actually a good point. It's called the I High do feel Republic, like isn't it? <laughs> so, yeah, but PL is kind of sticking. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of like Project Luminous. Um, like, know that when I say Project Luminous, I mean the High Republic and vice versa. Then everyone can be happy. Um but yeah, basically we have character descriptions for Project Luminous slash the High Republic. Um, and these aren't radically new slash surprising, but I did think they were kind of interesting. And I just briefly wanted to run through some of these character descriptions to see what we made of these scoundrels and rapscallions that are going to inhabit these stories. Um, so the first one is Ava Chris. Ava is the brightest, most noble example of Jedihood. She always tries to see the good in people and situations, and never puts herself first. She is invigorated about life on the frontier, and the challenges it brings, and is an inspiration for those who work with her. She is compassionate, not dogmatic, and always ready to sacrifice herself over others. Ava Chris is the best of the best. What do you think about this character, Kirsty? Okay, well, when I first read these, not just for Ava, but all of them, they kind of seemed a bit boring and bland to me. Sure. But the more I think about it, and again, this could be me setting myself to put on my clown makeup again and expect (laughs) too much. (laughs) Heaven forbid we get some conflict and (laughs) development. (laughs) But I don't know. It's almost like overselling the fact that she's the best of the best, as they say. Like, it's almost so exaggerated. Like, she's a saint. Yeah that I'm expecting her to fall flat on her face or in a good way recognize that actually maybe always putting other people before herself is not always a good thing. Yeah. Like maybe she does deserve to have something for herself. That's exactly the vibe that I got from reading these as well because it is just so cartoonishly, I'm perfect. I mean, I hope that's what it is and not just that that's genuinely what we're getting, that it's like, oh great, they're all flawless conflict free <laughs> <You know>? yay <laughs> yeah no as far as i'm concerned that i think you agree with this kirsty the best conflict is inner conflict and yeah as described here there's not much inner conflict but i do think that's got to be deliberate and that there will be internal stuff that these people are wrestling with because yeah otherwise you don't have a character you have a cartoon and these characters are going to appear in children's stories, but they're also going to appear in novels for adults. And you don't, or at least you shouldn't, get completely perfect characters in novels that are proclaimed to be for grown-ups. So. Even in ones for children, you want them to be relatable. Yeah. So it's not... Like, there was this um, comment from... Uh, was it the, the head of publishing at Lucasfilm or someone? He was talking about them being aspirational and inspirational, and I was like, okay yeah to an extent but they've also got to be compelling yeah like it can't just be like oh they're so good that makes me want to be good <laughs> that's not interesting yeah that's not how it works um so, i do we'll think it potentially ties back as well to what i was saying about that arthurian legend um mm. like model um which i think they have mentioned as a reference yeah, point have. for this 
Um, because, yeah, in those stories, you have all these legendary figures. And in the surface of popular imagination, they are like perfect people. You know, people think about King Arthur and they think about like the most noble king, the bravest king. But in the actual legends and stories, he's a cuckold, basically. And he gets lots of things wrong and he makes mistakes and he has moral weakness and he dies and he's frail and mortal and human. And yeah, there's all these interesting facets to him. And yeah, I'd hope that they're going to do something similarly interesting because that's the best type of myth making. I hope so. Yeah, we'll see. Um, so then we have Loden Greatstorm. They're Lod- good names. Yeah, they are that. really great names. Loden Greatstorm is pretty epic. Loden is a Twi'lek Jedi Master and is considered to be one of the best teachers in the Jedi Order. Strong and wise, with a good sense of humour. Loden looks at every moment as a learning experience, always trying to better himself and those around him, especially his Padawans. So he's going to be the funny guy. So I hope we're going to get lots of wisecracking jokes and fun times. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I tried to think about what sort of jokes that character would tell. He doesn't look like a funny guy in the illustration. Yeah, it depends. Does Loden describe himself as having a good sense of humour? Because that probably means he doesn't. (laughs) Yes. Is that what he puts on his Tinder profile? (laughs) Strong and wise, always trying to better himself. Yeah, yeah, sounds great. These could be like descriptions for a dating sim, actually. That would be a fun <laughs> dating sim. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Keeve Trennis. Keeve is a young firebrand Jedi, believed to have a great future ahead of her. If only she would believe in herself. Quick witted and more impulsive than she should be. Keith has only been a Jedi Knight for a few weeks and is a little starstruck around Ava, knowing many of the great things Chris has done in the past. She's determined to prove herself to Ava and other legendary Jedi stationed on Starlight Beacon, but first she must learn to trust in herself as much as she trusts the Force. So that sounds very much like the I'm a teenager and I'm coming of age character. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I, I like the idea of a character coming to believe in herself, and that's what matters. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I don't have much else to say about that character, to be honest. You don't have the like wisecracking Twi'lek aspect going on. Um, but, yeah, again, we'll see. It'll all depend on the storytelling. Um, then, would you like to read the next one, Kirsty? So <laughs> there won't be all the cock-ups in terms of pronunciations. Yeah. Stellan is an optimistic and well-respected Jedi Master. Stellan came up through the Order with Ava Chris, and although they are often on different assignments for the Jedi or the Republic, when the two work together they are a powerhouse team of two noble heroes in action. Strong in the Force and a natural teacher, Stellan is currently stationed at one of the Jedi Temple outposts on the distant planet of Caragon Viner. Okay, so my suspicion with this guy is I like to think there's going to be some sort of forbidden love aspect. I was going to say, is that a romance? Yeah, I really hope so. I need there to be some sort of like tortured love in this whole situation. And just let that bring the whole thing down. Just let it <laughs> cause absolute chaos. I just live for drama, clearly. <laughs> like to see people in drama. Yeah, I think it could be interesting to see two Jedi fall in love. Rather than... Because, you know, you get that trope throughout Star Wars of like people from different sides falling in love. And I guess Lost Stars, they kind of go to different sides. But... um yeah, it'd be interesting to see. I feel like they could show us a lot about how the Jedi Order was during its supposed golden age through that story. 
Yeah. And I'm just writing fan fiction in my head now. But I'd like it if they are in love, but Ava is too principled and too, like, by the book to actually do anything about it. Whereas Stellan is much more, like, serious about it. And it's like, no, but we're in love. And he, like, goes to the dark side or something because he's so heartbroken. I feel like that's quite cliched. but Maybe that's the thing that is referring to when she when they're like, oh, she won't put herself first. So she'll sacrifice that for... For the sake of the Jedi. Yeah. No, I really hope he gets something like that because, yeah, I live for drama. Um, okay, cool. Then do you just want to read out the last one? Yeah. I do I do like how optimistic we're still being about future romances in Star Wars. Yeah. We've got to try, Kirsty. Ready to be fooled again. We can we can write fan fiction if none of this oh, comes yeah. to pass. It's fine. Definitely. <laughs> Vanestra Vern Rowe? How do you pronounce that last name? I feel like that's impossible to pronounce. I would just go with what you just said. <laughs> Vern is a newly minted Jedi Knight. Venestra Miriolan was Padawan to Stellan Geos. She worked hard and is devoted to the Jedi Order, more so than most others her age. At 16, she's one of the youngest knights in a generation. She struggles to fit in with the adults while also setting a good example for the younger Jedi. I feel like that's a disaster to make a 16-year-old a Jedi Knight. <laughs> Hmm. It just seems so young. It's like Well, I don't know. I mean this is a world in which Padme was queen at fourteen. Yeah, that's true. It seems like people mature at all different rates. <laughs> yeah. No, it's probably unusual to not be like having a mortgage and stuff by the time you're sixteen in this universe. Yeah. Um, it's getting not a girl, not yet a woman vibe. <laughs> not a girl, not yet a woman. Yeah. No, definitely. This is presumably going to be the protagonist like the middle grade books or like the young adult books um and yeah like she'll be good (laughs) she'll be a very good person very noble intent yeah no so basically there's not really not much to say based on these descriptions which is why i'm being a bit silly sometimes about some of them um and yeah, like the main thing that intrigues me is exactly what Kirsty observed at the start of all this, which is that they sound suspiciously perfect in terms of, come on guys, there's got to be more going on than this. So we'll see. And I'm, I've got the clown makeup right here. So I'll put the clown makeup on if we're proven wrong and they are just actually perfect. So yeah, time will tell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know what to say because you're right. Like, there's not there's not much else here. So, exactly. Hopefully, they're just doing the classic Star Wars thing where they don't give much away up front. Yeah, but it's not succeeding and getting me super hyped. So, exactly. The name Charles Soul is <laughs> for reasons we'll go into later. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Awesome. So then we have some very interesting comments from two editors who've worked with JJ on several projects so it's Marianne Brandon and Mary Jo Markey and basically they both worked with JJ on editing The Force Awakens and then Marianne Brandon only worked on The Rise of Skywalker in collaboration with someone else who we don't have interview comments from. Oh really? I thought it was just her, okay. Um, Yeah, no, there was someone else. Let me look up the name actually. They've Uh, kept themselves out of the public eye with this. Yeah, uh, what was their name? Um, yeah, so The Rise of Skywalker was also edited by um, Stephen Groob. 
I don't know in what capacity he contributed and like whether it was like equal job sharing or whether Marianne had more to do with it but I know Marianne has had a really long-standing relationship with JJ so I'd imagine she was the lead editor but that's just my assumption mm. um but basically Marianne and Mary Jo both appeared on this Mission Impossible podcast called Light the Fuse which actually seems like a really cool podcast I want to try and listen to some more of it because I do really like the Mission Impossible movies and I had no idea that this podcast would exist. It makes a lot of sense that it does, but it was still something of a pleasant surprise. Yeah, it's um, one of those things that whenever people hear that we have a Star Wars podcast, they're like, what do you talk about every week? Yeah. I, I can't speak to it because I've only seen, I think it was the last Mission Impossible movie. We watched it together, right? Yeah, and no, we did in London. That was really fun. Yeah, it was really good, but I haven't seen the others. So part of me is like, what do they have to talk about? But that's me being very hypocritical. So, because here we are. Yeah, no, exactly. And they seem to have amazing access. Like, can you imagine if we had the editors of these films on the podcast? Oh, no, thank you. <laughs> Oh the my thought God. of anyone involved with any of it listening to us makes me anxious. Yeah, no, no, we don't want to go down that path. But <laughs> yeah, these guys, they have an amazing level of access. They're talking to really cool people. So I definitely recommend checking it out. And yeah, the conversation with Marianne Brandon and Mary Jo Markey is really interesting. So I really love editing just as an art form. And they're both really intelligent, experienced editors. So they have lots of great insights. Um, we're obviously going to talk about their comments about Star Wars because that's what we do. Um, but yeah, just check out the podcast. It's worth listening to. Oh, I was just going to point out that the the interview was spread over three different episodes. But the the part that's gone semi-viral is the last part where mm. they're talking more about The Last Jedi. Because, of course, that's the bit that's going to get clicks. Yeah. Um but they, they have interesting comments throughout the other episodes too. So if, well, we're, we're going to cover them here. But if it piques any, anyone's interest, I'd recommend going back and listening to it yourself. Yep. No, definitely. Because um, the first comments we're going to talk about are from episode 93. Um, and they start at 33 minutes and 50 seconds in. I just wanted to give the timestamp so it's easy for people to find. Um, yeah, and I'll just read out the first bit. Did they have plans for where the next movie should go and where they deviated from? Marianne, that's an interesting question. I think they were just so concentrating in getting one up and rebooting the series. When I first started on the film, I didn't even realise that it was going to go to another director. I didn't even think about it. In hindsight, I wish JJ had done them all and they'd spread them out into a 10-year period, made it sort of like Lord of the Rings. Mary Jo... I do remember them talking about certain elements that they thought should be followed through, which is tantalising, but she doesn't specify which ones. Yeah, that, okay. So that's what's kind of frustrating to me about, because this kind of thing has come up a lot, and it's a question that a lot of fans have at this point as well. If there was stuff in The Force Awakens that JJ feels like he set up and Ryan chose to go different ways, maybe give examples? Because they keep talking about it and like seem frustrated with the fact that Ryan went in a different way and it was considered controversial and then they went back to things with The Rise of Skywalker. But what specifically are you talking about? Because and this is something that we've come, we've approached a lot since The Force Awakens was even out and we were kind of speculating on where The Last Jedi might go. The Last Jedi ended up being pretty close to where we thought things were going to go. Yeah. But obviously that's not the case for lots of other fans. And I'm just wondering why that is, what it is about The Force Awakens that led people down so many different paths and why perhaps JJ and his editors 
think that things there were kind of more set in stone than we did or Ryan did mm. that he then intentionally uh, there's another comment later that we'll get to but I don't know it seems like people interpret that film in very different ways yeah no I think um, we were discussing this just among ourselves and, and I described The Force Awakens as being something of a Rorschach test in terms of everyone seems to see different things in it basically and that was one of the things that made that post Force Awakens period so exciting because it did mean you had all these passionate camps assembling their own theories and their own beliefs about what the film was trying to say and what it was setting up for future storytelling and fortunately our camp the Raylos like settled on certain conclusions that were then followed through in The Last Jedi but then obviously JJ comes back for nine and he seems to look at what was done in The Last Jedi and the impression we get from some of the choices he made in The Rise of Skywalker and the editor's comments in these interviews are that the choices that Ryan made weren't necessarily what JJ was setting up but I think what we're all craving like you say Kirsty, is just those specifics it's like well in what ways did he deviate like what were your plans because I think for me the thing is it's unreasonable to accuse someone of deviating from your plans if you didn't leave clear plans and you aren't prepared to explain what those plans are to the person it's just strange Mm. yeah and did they have conversations about it did they have them in person or over the phone how many conversations did they have um, how does it work when JJ is an executive producer on The Last Jedi, sees the script before it happens, gives it the thumbs up, presumably. I don't know what, to what degree he's involved or is aware of the story. Um, and then agrees, this is the key aspect, agrees to come back to make the next movie after knowing full well what The Last Jedi is about, even though he wasn't intending to make the third film. Mm. Uh, we'll we'll get into it later because there are further comments on that kind of thing but it's just it's very interesting to read people's different perspectives when they're involved in this yeah no absolutely i love these sort of behind the scenes insights um so the next question from the host that i want to discuss is did it evolve a lot in post-production marianne yes it evolved in post-production but there were a lot of basic ideas to begin with in where we were going to take the main character JJ and Chris Terrio very much wanted Ray, Finn and Poe to be together in this one and have an adventure the way that Luke, Leia and Han did. They're good together, they're emotionally connected. Yeah, there was some figuring and rejiggering, but it goes along with the script. So, yeah, I I think that's abundantly clear (laughs) in the film because, yeah, it was clearly a deliberate choice to make Finn, Ray and Poe front and centre. It's really just a question over how successful that was because yeah I think you and I have been saying Kirsty that it doesn't seem like that trio dynamic has left the imprint that it was probably intended to well this is another thing that's interesting to me because I mean again as you say she points out that JJ and Terrio were really set on this idea of them being reminiscent of Han, Luke and Leia um so that's them wanting to emulate the original trilogy. But in my opinion, there's no actual deeper thought there into the differences between these characters and those ones, the mm. dynamics between them or how Ray and Poe had barely interacted in the first two movies. Um, and a part of that is down to JJ's choices with The Force Awakens. And also them not really acknowledging that the intent with Poe at the beginning was quite different. And you can tell from The Force Awakens because Poe was a very different um 
smaller, shallower character in there. Oscar obviously gives a great performance. He's a talented actor, but there's not much there for him to work with. And Ryan deepened that character and gave him an arc in The Last Jedi. But also that, you know, even following the structure of the original trilogy, for The Empire Strikes Back, the characters are separated. So yes, you get Han and Leia, but Luke doesn't really reunite with Leia until the very end. Mm. So it it still doesn't even follow that formula because The Force Awakens is not like A New Hope and you get Rey and Finn together for a large chunk of it, but you don't get Rey and Poe. Yeah. Poe's not presented as like a real Han Solo figure there. Yeah, it's very strange. It's I really definitely feel like Force Awakens was a more risky movie than The Rise of Skywalker in many ways. And yeah, Rise of Skywalker in some ways it feels like reaching for the safety blanket after you've been shaken up by something. Yeah. And yeah, it's just a shame. Yeah, I feel like comments like this where they specifically and explicitly like, yes, we wanted it to be like Han, Luke and Leia. It just kind of come back to what we've said and what many other people have said at this point, that everything, including the reveal that Rey is actually related to the evil figure, is kind of just a less affected version of Luke's story. And I really don't think that was their original intent with Rey. Yeah. Um, despite what might come out now to kind of smooth things over and, and say what the intent always was with Rey, the whole metaphorical Skywalker thing. I really do think that they had more interesting ideas at first and kind of just shied away from them mm. because of the backlash to The Last Jedi. Because they don't go into it, into it in depth here, but this is something that I've been thinking about a lot. I don't think we can really overstate how controversial and um, quite groundbreaking it really is to have Rey as a character in The Last Jedi as she is and the kind of journey of self-discovery that she goes on, especially with elements of sexual agency and discovery. Mm. Um, I think Ryan did an amazing job there and I think people were afraid of it. And I don't just think fans, I think maybe people at Disney were kind of spooked by it too because it really is quite extraordinary. Yeah. No, like, the more I think about The Last Jedi, the more I'm amazed that it exists. It's kind of like a miracle of big-budget blockbuster franchise filmmaking, to be honest. I think the only film of that scale that I can think is even doing similarly bold things is Blade Runner 2049, which is, yeah, another amazing movie in a very different franchise. Yeah, and that was received interestingly as well. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Like, thank God those films exist. Yeah. So the next part, the host asked, was Palpatine added in post-production? Marianne, <laughs> no! <laughs> I've never met someone who's given his all as much as that guy, meaning Ian McDermott. He just got up there on that thing, thrilled every day. What can I do for you? You want it like this? You want it like that? He was so game to be the Emperor host. Was there more setup for the character? Marianne. There was a little bit more. He's not a clone. He's more than a clone. Honestly, if you think about it, does it matter? He was there. He was back. <laughs> it's very hard to read this in transcript and I really recommend that people listen to the podcast because Marianne has like quite delightful delivery of all this stuff, especially her performance of Ian McDermott saying all these things. It's quite delightful. Um, so yeah, people should go and listen to that. It sort of put a smile on my face to imagine Ian McDermott just being so cheerful to be strapped into that mechanical <laughs> what's it. <laughs> it's like, I've got no idea what oh, that is. but I know, it's like a little crane. It's so weird. <laughs> it's so weird. I do kind of love that though. <laughs> it's one of the aspects of the film I do love. 
Ian did an amazing job and I, I knew he would because he's fantastic. Yeah. Um, you know, I totally believe her. He was so game. And I just think it's funny. <laughs> She's like, again, well, he's not a clone. He's more than a clone. But does it matter? <laughs> it's like, unfortunately, yes, it does. And she's like, he was back. It's like, somehow, yeah. <laughs> Palpatine has returned. I'm kind of like, oh, Marianne, my sweet summer child, you really don't know Star Wars fandom, do you? I think she's, I think she's getting it, and she's <laughs> understandably exasperated by us. Yes. Um, it, it reminds me of the interview she did uh, relatively quickly after the release, where they were asking her questions about like the Snoke stuff, and she was mm. like, oh yeah, the the Snoke's in the jars. We just added that kind of last minute because we thought it would look cool, and it's like, yeah. <laughs> not really thinking about the story implications for that character or or again tying in like the palpatine i created snoke or whatever he says <laughs> it's like you realize that has huge knock-on effects to the rest of the story and the agency that you give these characters and not just snoke himself but ben solo when he kills him yeah and all of this did is snoke this is what i've been thinking about since this interview is Snoke aware when he meets Ray that she is the granddaughter of the guy who cloned him? <laughs> There's so many questions. Because Snoke's aware yeah. that they're a dyad, but Palpatine isn't. Yeah, when I was reading the Rise of Kylo Ren comic book for this episode, actually, so we're going to talk about it in a minute. Um, there's obviously Snoke and Palpatine both make appearances in that. And I was just like, oh God, do I want to think about how this is working like what the arrangement is with like is Palpatine in Snoke's head as he's talking to Ben like to what extent is Snoke autonomous and it's like oh yeah, well, no that's the thing you want to compartmentalise it but it's basically impossible because of the choices to like put Palpatine in there yeah and you know that's as a response to the choices they make in The Rise of Skywalker so it's like it's all the same story whether we like it or not exactly um, yeah so so we know that palpatine was supposed to be part of the movie from the start which i think maybe this host has been reading kind of fan theories online and then trying to address some of them but i don't think it was ever a question of palpatine literally not being in the movie it Mm. was just to what extent like i think some people were maybe wondering about the ray palpatine stuff because i don't think ray herself ever says anything about being a palpatine it's all kind of people saying it to her and her reacting or not reacting in some cases (laughs) Like Palpatine, Schmalpatine, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, like, and you're right, they definitely were reacting to fan theories because I didn't transcribe this part because it was mostly just them laughing and goofing around. Um, but there's a part where um, the host attempts to ask about Matt Smith and him appearing in the film at one point. But basically, they get the name wrong. So they say Matt, whatever, like something else, you know, the wrong surname. And so the editors have no idea what he's talking about. And they're like, oh, was dear. that a guy in a stormtrooper mask? <laughs> and then they all just like devolve into like laughter and then talking about Daniel Craig and stuff. So, okay. yeah. And it's annoying. So I would have so loved to actually get an answer on that. It's like, well, yeah, you came because... so close. <laughs> that didn't come out of nowhere. Cause I, I, yeah. And I know that official, not official, but these trade magazines... It was Variety, I think, who originally reported on. I think maybe Deadline picked it up too. Um, you know, trusted sources that people would reasonably trust, right? That you read it there and think, oh, okay, that that's as close to official as an official announcement on StarWars.com is. But then we never heard anything else. So what is the truth? 
That and that is the question when it comes to Matt Smith. Like, I hope at some point he can actually answer. You know, so if anyone would know, it would be Matt Smith himself. Well, yeah, because you know we get that flashback of Ray's dad, who is presumably what he is. The novelization confirms it, right? He's literally a clone of Palpatine. Mm. So that's what young Palpatine looks like. But was there a point early on? where he wasn't supposed to be a clone, he was genuinely supposed to be his son, and maybe Matt Smith was going to play young Palpatine? Mm. Who knows? Yeah. So can you remember, there was, like, I think maybe a Radio Times interview of Richard E. Grant, and they asked him flat out, are you working with Matt Smith on Star Wars? Mm. And he was like, ooh, that would be telling. <laughs> or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And, I don't know, maybe he was just completely playing coy and he had nothing to do with him, but... To an extent, it would make sense for those characters to cross paths, you know, so they'd both be baddies and Pride is meant to be, like, loyal to Palpatine. So, yeah, who knows? We'll find out <laughs> one day, I think. Just not right now. Then we have the host asking, that ending on Tatooine, how much finessing was there? People are speculating that Ben Solo is still alive in some version. Marianne, I know, I have it in square brackets that she was exasperated because I, I just can't act this guy, so I just need to tell you that she was exasperated. Here's the thing, you probably know more than I do. People would ask me questions and I'd be like, what? People were like, so, JJ's director's cut? And I'd be like, did you see the film? That's his cut. And they'd be like, where's the secret cut? <laughs> I was like, why would we go there? Why would we waste that energy? Yeah, I don't know if Marianne's heard about this, but I'm guessing that this is about um, this notion that Disney got too involved and JJ isn't happy with the final movie. Yep, that's a um, saltier than crate rumour from Reddit. That's how that started. God knows. I don't put much stock in this stuff, but it's like, it would be a reasonable thing for people to speculate on, I guess. Like, if they didn't like the movie, didn't think it was very good, they would be like, oh, well, I wonder if that really is what JJ wanted to put out there. Yeah. Uh, Again, I'm not a fan of the whole Zack Snyder thing but like is that where this kind of thing comes from this like hashtag release the cut like is is that kind of the genesis of all this I think it's like this weird synthesis of things so I do think release the Snyder cut comes from a different place because in that case it was like Zack Snyder had to stop working on Justice League so he had a personal tragedy and someone else took over the film and yeah so that in that case there is a legitimate Zack Snyder version of that film but like it would never actually got finished basically so people are asking for like a pie in the sky you know it's a film that was never actually fully executed and in this case it's a really rather silly question because there was only ever one director no that's well that's not true because Trevor was on it at one point well not during production during the post-production there was only ever one film there was only ever one director working on the rise of skywalker basically so it's not comparable to the justice league situation so i definitely think that the calls for the jj cut are much more silly for that reason but you can still understand the place that is coming from it i think it's sort of inevitable these big fan loved franchises you know because people always have these lofty expectations and when they're not met they imagine a better version in their mind and they're like oh well maybe that exists out there somewhere and yeah usually it doesn't i think what's frustrating about and again i can't blame the host because they're probably you know they they host a mission impossible podcast but maybe their understanding of star wars and its fandom is not to that degree but i think it'd be far more interesting to ask not not if like 
oh well was there a version at some point where ben solo was still alive because i i have my doubts about that but what would be more interesting is to talk about the movie that we did end up with and ask hey there seems to be an interesting thing where one of these characters dies and no one really reacts yeah (laughs) and he's never acknowledged again so is there anything you want to say about that in terms of the choices of editing or is that more down to the script yeah but nope (laughs) so that's the question i'd want to ask i'd be like did you like ever have more of an emphasis on ray grieving that loss like of her actually being sad that he's gone you know because you get like a very brief reaction shot but it's also like a slightly ambiguous reaction shot because it sort of turns from grief to what's going on here and then it cuts to Leia and then like Ray's in the cockpit and it's like what the fuck (laughs) yeah you just have all these whiplash moments and the editors would be so well placed to talk about that so yeah it's that whole thing of so near yet so far in terms of the almost the right questions being asked but they're really not asked and yeah Maybe we should change this into an interview in podcast, Kirsty. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they'd be only too happy to come on here. Oh, I'm uh, sure they'd love it. <laughs> Did you know what she says later? I think Marianne is 100% done with the Star Wars fandom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I can't blame her, to be honest. No. No. Yeah. Um, oh, my God. Anyway, do you want me to read the next part? Yeah, yeah. Please do. Okay. So this is closer to the part that I think people picked up. Because, well, we did. We retweeted it on Twitter. and then Because it hadn't. I don't think it had really made the rounds at that point. And then um, the clickbait has come out since then in response to this, but it was flying under the radar for some reason before then. Um, so in episode 94, and you probably already listened to this, the host says, did you guys like The Last Jedi? Marianne says, I liked parts of The Last Jedi, yeah. You know, The Last Jedi will say this. It was just a different take on the Star Wars saga. And to Ryan's credit, he stuck to what he wanted to do, and he wanted to deconstruct the film and open it up to go to a different direction. And that's the film he made. I know it is controversial, but isn't that kind of good in a way? You bring in new elements, and yeah. So, you know, that's why I say I feel very much in hindsight that the trilogy, the last part of the trilogy, needed one vision. And then Mary Jo says, I couldn't agree more. It's very strange to have the second film so consciously undo the storytelling of the first one. I'm sorry, that's what it felt like. The host says, no, yeah, there were people obsessing over how the Rise of Skywalker undid all the stuff that Ryan Johnson did. And, you know, Ryan Johnson kind of did that first. Marianne, right, and so it went like that. Mary Jo, I don't even really feel like that's true about the third film. I don't know, I don't feel that way. Marianne, well, the third film went with the first film. Mary Jo, it took where the second film ended and just tried to tell the story. Tried to tell a story. I didn't feel like it was consciously trying to undo... I don't know, it just didn't feel that way to me. And the host says, The Last Jedi was a polarising movie. I mean, there were a lot of really interesting ideas in it. It doesn't all fully work. Marianne. I agree. I think it's really polarising and it was hard to know for the writer and for JJ what to do with it. You know, it's like if someone wrote the middle of your novel and you're like, okay, now how do I get to the end of the novel? And I think any big film, like action, adventure, sci-fi, you know, all these films, they're very hard to get on paper. And I think as editors, that's what you end up, or in my experience, you end up doing so much work in the cutting room. Because you can't really write these things out. It's like, oh, they go to the thing and they have a battle on this planet and then the battle becomes a story in itself. But on paper, it's not quite a story. It's just kind of a sequence of shots. And they go on and they start talking about their work with JJ on Star Trek. But um, this is the pertinent stuff for The Last Jedi and Rise of Skywalker. 
No, so these are really interesting comments and I want to be very clear up front that it's perfectly okay that they're conflicted slash have mixed feelings about The Last Jedi. Oh yeah. We're not like Fort Police saying like, how dare they not like the film? I think what's interesting and really provoked comment is this suggestion that what The Last Jedi did made the work for The Rise of Skywalker more difficult and more of a challenge. Um, Because really I think the only reason there were problems there is because the Rise of Skywalker was so consciously like straining against some of the choices that The Last Jedi had leaned into Mm -hmm. and yeah whereas if it had tried to more organically pick up some of those threads and carry them forward it would have been a stronger movie as a result and the whole thing would have felt more like this cohesive novel sort of that Marianne alludes to and yeah, it's a bit strange because you do get comments. I f- I'm not sure if it's from Mary Jo or Marianne saying that they did feel that the Rise of Skywalker respected what the Last Jedi was trying to do and was like sincerely trying to engage with its decisions and continue the story. Well, they seem to disagree on that because Marianne says, "Well, the third film went with the first film," which I think is a very honest thing to say. Yeah. Mary Jo feels differently and she says it took where the second film ended and just tried to tell the story. And I think that this is where people disagree. So it's interesting to me that even the editors disagree on this point because it all depends on your perspective and what you think the story is trying to say. Yeah. No, you're right. And I guess in this case, Marianne's perception is perhaps the more interesting because she's obviously the one who worked on The Rise of Skywalker. So if there was that effort to not really engage with what The Last Jedi had done and engage more with the tone and the directions of The Force Awakens, then Marianne would be in a position to say that because she would have had those conversations with JJ and Chris Terrio, etc. Um, whereas I, I don't know if Mary Jo had any like special insights and was like keeping in touch with JJ and Marianne during the process, but she wasn't actively working on the film like they were. So yeah, that's important to bear in mind. Yeah, and there are like there are comments later that Marianne kind of goes into more about their their feelings on the Last Jedi and how it's been kind of um, this thing in the press where people want to like point at them as like they hated the Last Jedi and that's why they made the Rise of Skywalker, and I don't think it's like so childish as that. I don't think they hated it because the these people are just doing a job, yeah. you know, that they're, they're just trying to make a movie for people to enjoy. And I think she's being honest when she does say, well, the third film went with the first film because the same guy was making it and he has these certain ideas about Star Wars yeah. and they're a little different from the guy who made the second film. And I agree with her in that, in hindsight, it probably should have been one creator. Not necessarily the same guy writing and directing all of them, but they maybe should have had the film equivalent of a showrunner, right? Someone yeah. consistent. And I think the idea at the beginning was that they had the story group that that hasn't really panned out unfortunately yeah it's clear that the story group has been consulted to varying degrees across the films i do feel like it would have been better to have one creative voice but that isn't what happened and i the the comments about oh well someone someone writes the middle of your novel and you have to come in and figure out that well actually that's not how it worked because as we all know jj was meant to write the first part of the novel he was never going to write the third part that wasn't the plan yeah so it's not the same and it, I, if there is like this sense of ownership and maybe it does come down to ego more than people want to admit mm. then I think that's where the problems probably stem from yeah I, I feel it would actually um, be good to 
just read out that final quote from Marianne. So I'll just read that quickly. Um, the press, I have to say for myself, was not kind to The Rise of Skywalker. We, we got misquoted constantly. I personally got misquoted so many times I'm afraid to even speak. Oh my god, it's awful. I finally said I'm not answering any more questions because I talked to you honestly about a film I put my heart and soul into and then I read what you wrote. It's terrible. JJ's words get twisted. They paint all of us as people who didn't like hate or did like hate. They insinuate so much. We're supportive. We're just trying to make a film. We don't have devilish secrets to keep from everyone or why we did things. We're just trying to tell a great story. I spent a month literally not answering emails because I was really... You're quoting the editor as saying things I didn't say? I'm just the source of here's how you do things. And yeah, I think that's really important context to all this because, yeah, ultimately, I think that the reality is that these people, they're in a high pressure environment with deadlines they need to meet and like targets and like a million different stakeholders that they need to satisfy. And they're not in the position that we're in as fans where we sit with these films for months and years after they're put out and we like run over them in our minds and think about all the creative decisions and their implications and their implications for other facets of the universe and the other films and the characters journeys and stuff and I I do think that there is like engagement with like the themes and like the wider context of Star Wars and the character journeys and stuff but I really don't think that they have that capacity to engage on the level that we do as fans how do you feel about that Kirsty? no i agree with you and i think that's why transformative fandom is so wonderful and i know people some people listening might start rolling their eyes and say fanfic's no substitute because i i get it like i was disappointed in this movie but i don't feel personally slighted by anyone who made these movies because i i do believe her when she says we did it with love we were just making a movie we had fun making it together she said before unless this counts as one of the things she was misquoted on that they were rushed that they wish they had more time and i think jj's alluded to this too Mm. but they were beholden to all of these external forces like you said which we as fanfic writers and readers and people who make podcasts and however you engage in fandom we have all the time in the world like that's what we choose to spend our free time on and there's no there's no deadline for putting out the next chapter of your fanfic yeah, and it is done with love and you do think about these characters so much and in very different ways from the creators so it's just you know the, we just kind of have to make our piece of it The Last Jedi worked for us The Rise of Skywalker did not in many ways there are parts that we can take away from it and adapt as we see fit I don't know I, I do have very mixed thoughts on it because when I first heard this interview honestly I did not think that it was particularly classy of them to start talking about how The Last Jedi consciously undid storytelling of The Force Awakens. Mm. And that is concerning phrasing to me, honestly. Yeah. From professional storytellers, when people talk about things being undone consciously, I, I don't know what they're talking about because that to me sounds like YouTuber phrasing. Undoing things in storytelling, it just sounds like something from CinemaSins. It, it doesn't sound to me how authors, or in this case editors talk about storytelling as a wider thing it makes me kind of sad that um people working in the industry have started to absorb that kind of rhetoric Mm. and i do think that kind of shows not that mary joe did not work on the rise of skywalker so when she makes that comment i'm not saying that's directly 
part of why the rise of skywalker is the way it is but i think it's something i think it is related to an extent because you can tell that the people involved are hyper aware of how the last two movies were received and they're talking about it here yeah and jj's talked about it how the force awakens is nothing more than a new hope we don't believe that or at least we didn't we wanted to believe that he was doing more there something more interesting but the way they talk about it it's like it's so clear that they were really trying to please people and to me fundamentally that is not how you make art no and it's a shame it's like celebration um was almost exactly a year ago today no it was exactly a year ago today um from the time of this recording and the rhetoric there or at least the quote that they kept on saying again and again was it's going to be satisfying and it does break my heart a bit because I do think they were very sincere about that. I do think that was completely the intent with The Rise of Skywalker, that they were trying to please everyone. But there's obviously the very old saying that if you try to please everyone, you end up pleasing no one. And I really do feel like that's kind of what happened because the audience that, to a large extent, they were trying to cater to with a lot of the decisions, like in terms of giving Luke a badass moment with pulling the X-Wing out of the water and having Lando back and all that sort of thing, that audience was just left completely cold, you know, because it just didn't go far enough for them. And short of, like, having nothing to do with the new characters and just completely, like, going back to the old dynamics and the old original trilogy cast, which for obvious reasons is impossible at this point, it could never have pleased them basically so they were trying to please an audience that was impossible to please and they did have an audience that could have been left pleased and satisfied in the people that were more invested in these new characters and obviously people have different types of investments in like ray and kylo and finn and poe etc so you'd have still had unhappy people but if it if it had truly committed to telling the story of those characters in their own right and just telling a really solid story of a through line about them, then I don't think we'd be in this position. But that just isn't the way that they were approaching it, sadly. Yeah, it does make me sad for them because... And not too sad, don't get me wrong, because I'm sure they're on to more exciting projects and this is <laughs> this is this is their career, you know? It's of like course, me coming yeah, home from yeah. work and talking about something that I'm not particularly proud of. It's just... Uh, the overwhelming feeling I get from this interview and from others like it is that this is not how people sound when they're extremely proud of a movie or a project they've worked on. Mm. You know, it's, it's just not. They sound offensive um, and it, it does make me kind of sad. Yeah. No, it's a pity, and yeah, I I am really fascinated by the behind the scenes of this movie, though. So I'm really glad to get these comments, and yeah, I hope we get other comments like it. It's just so interesting, and yeah, I think people presumably become more loose-lipped as more time goes by, and people are going to be asked questions about it. So we will see. So yeah, any um more thoughts on these comments, Kirsty, before we wrap it up? There was a bit where Marianne was kind of talking about, and we, we read out the quote earlier, but I forgot to come back to it. She's talking about how like nothing works on paper and it's really hard to write these things. And it's kind of more of a sequence of things, like going from one planet to another, and then there's a space battle and it's less of a story, but just kind of things happening. Mm. Uh, and that to me sounds like The Rise of Skywalker. Um, and I'm aware that's because I didn't like the movie. This is going sure. to be like my, my perception. But I've honestly kind of lost count of how many times someone involved has kind of inadvertently admitted that it's a bit of a mess. 
I don't think they think that that's what they're doing. And I think she's being honest when she's saying, like, as editors, we are expected to, to bring it. You know, like, so much work is done in the editing room because JJ's been candid about that as his process and not just on this film. Yeah. He, shoot, he shoots a ton of stuff and then in the editing room they make the story. And to be honest, that's how a lot of the first Star Wars came together. Yeah. Um, it's just JJ has a very different style from Ryan who wrote what he wanted to make and then went and made it and had plenty of time left. Um, so I just kind of feel for these editors because they've clearly got a lot on their plate. Yeah. And when she's talking about how it's not really a story, you kind of have to build a story. It's just kind of a sequence of things happening. It's like, yeah, and I can see how you did the best you can, but it it is just kind of cementing to me that the actual intent in terms of the story and the characters and the themes there it's, it's not in the script, so when the script is finally released, if it ever is, I'm not expecting things to suddenly click into place. And I'd just love to have JJ speak more to the intent of things, if that's there, you know? Yeah. Because I'm starting to suspect, really, that it's not. Mm. Um, and I just wonder what the point of it all is. And I feel bad for the editors if they have to make those kind of choices, because then they're the, really, they're the ones shaping the story. Like... That shouldn't really be on them, in my opinion. Yeah. Like, I think what this really underlines is that different directors have very different ways of working in terms of how they construct their stories and where they really come together. And I think it's very clear that with JJ, it's much more of like a chaotic freestyle process, basically, where, yes, you have a script, but that script is very changeable. And it's very open to new ideas and there's new script pages every day and everyone's on their toes because things might change at any minute. And we know that that was the case with The Force Awakens as well. There were lots of really significant changes made on that film all the time. Um, And clearly it was the same with The Rise of Skywalker too. So I feel like when these editors talk about having to do a lot of work in the cutting room to actually piece the story together I almost feel like that's a source of pride for them because they obviously take pride of their work and the creative labour that goes into constructing these sequences in the editing room and I feel like that's a way of working that they're very familiar with because it just does seem to be JJ's style um But yeah, at the same time, I think it's more worrying for us as fans because it does raise that question mark over so how much like thought to the implications of these decisions was being given. Like, or was it really just about this makes sense in the context of this film and this scene and that's all that matters? Because unfortunately, the truth is with something like Star Wars, it's much bigger than that and yeah it goes beyond this one film essentially and it's not good enough to just make a sequence work in its own right it has all these like implications for other sequences and other characters and other films and it's just a nightmare i would if i were an editor i would never take on a job on a franchise like this purely because of this reason because you just need to be juggling thousands of different plates at once and there's so much potential for things to go wrong so yeah it's not an enviable task yeah <laughs> sorry I'm, I'm done that's the trust out of the way okay cool awesome <laughs> so we're going to move on to the main attraction of this episode which is the rise of kylo ren comic book and this is a four issue comic book series 
that started in December, so it came out around the same time as the movie, and then it continued up until last month. I think I brought the last issue of this just before the stores closed because of coronavirus. So you have quite a historic issue of a comic book in your hands, Kirsty, when you're handling that issue for. So I basically sent Kirsty my copies after I was done with them because I have digital copies. So yeah. Greatly appreciated. Thank you. You're very welcome. Sorry, that did sound like I was fishing for praise. <laughs> it's like acknowledge me, Kirsty. <laughs> Oh my god. Um, But yeah, so even though it's been an ongoing series since December, we haven't spoken about it yet. And I've been really excited to talk about it because, yeah, I'm really impressed by this series and I do think there's a lot to dig into. And yeah, it's obviously very interesting as well to talk about how this interweaves with the movies and the choices that were made in The Rise of Skywalker specifically. And I know you have some conflicted feelings about that, Kirsty. So do you want to talk about that a bit at the start? Yeah, well, it's it's not even just about The Rise of Skywalker. It's in kind of the sequel trilogy as a whole. The way that they've handled this, as in, like, Ben Solo as a character and, and his backstory, has been really interesting because it's kind of alluded to in The Force Awakens and then obviously explored through the kind of Rashomon effect um, in The Last Jedi. But then... This challenges the notion that you you come away from that movie with, mm. or at least at least what I came away from it with, and not in a way that like I'm shocked by what it tells me because it always seemed like something more was there to be said. But it's odd to me to make that choice to make it part of a comic series instead of part of the story itself because you bring it up as the story in the sequel trilogy, and then it's not really resolved. Um, so it's kind of just left there hanging as if so the general audience probably walks away from it thinking that Luke's perception in that final vision flashback that we get and him recounting the events to Rey before she leaves Arc 2 that's what happened and Ben Solo tells us himself the night I destroyed his temple Mm. so we're left with that impression Um, and, and not just the actual temple destruction as well but just the way he falls the reasons he falls because all of that is kind of left ambiguous in the trilogy itself um and this is important character information to me it's important for understanding the overall intent behind the character what they were trying to say with the story overall and as a result it it kind of feeds into again what i've been saying about how i feel about the sequel trilogy as a whole now it's all been told it's like what what was trying to be said here because the comic series i loved it i think the art is stunning the characterization of Ben and the events that led to his downfall are interesting and surprising to me as a Ben Solo fan in yeah. terms of how much he is woobified <laughs> by by Charles and Will here in the drawing of Ben's expressions and his naivety and it just almost seems like this is not for us so much as for fans who still didn't really buy that he was redeemable by the end of The Rise of Skywalker. They really need to see him as this sad, vulnerable kid because it's really laid on thick. Right until the end, it's like Ben Solo did nothing wrong and this is just all a horrible tragedy of misunderstandings and this kid not really knowing where he fits in and just desperately wanting to be loved and accepted. And it's so sad. Yeah. It's a really great story and it makes me so excited to read more stuff by Charles Soule because historically I've never been much of a comic book reader, to be honest. I'm even for Star Wars, like, believe it or not. 
but yeah the writing of this is just amazing like i transcribed a lot of the quotes from this for note-taking purposes i want to discuss quite a few of them specifically and it's just so well written and like normally my preferred format is like a novel or something like that and just reading this I really was feeling like oh this could be such a great novel and I do think it's an amazing comic book and the art is great and like everything is so well executed but the reality with a comic book is that you read it in about 10 minutes and then you're done so this is like 40 minutes of content and I would just love something really really deep you know with this yeah it leaves you wanting more and you know, Charles Saul is a novelist, so it's understandable that things you'd pick up on in the writing. And we probably sound like we're bashing comic writers. It, the simple truth is, we don't know enough about the genre to even do that. It's not it's not a genre that we usually consume. So when we're reading this, we're like, wow, this is amazing writing. And it might be the case that lots of comics out there are at this level and we just don't know. But it because this is a character that we love and the story is just told really well, it's like, oh, I, I want more from this. Yeah. Um, and I would trust Charles Soule to write more about this character. Yeah, it's just, it's so tragic. And it raises lots of interesting questions to me about whether there's kind of an agreed upon reading of Ben and what they were trying to say with him at Lucasfilm or if every creator is kind of free to do with him what they want. Mm. Because I do feel like Charles Soule has quite a different reading on the character than J.J. Abrams does, for example. Yeah, like I feel like Charles Soule's take is much more nuanced and psychologically complex. Um, because yeah one of the most fascinating aspects of the comic is the way it goes into like Ben's self self-deception because so much of this story is about Ben like reinventing himself and telling accounts of what he's done or hasn't done that simply aren't true usually to make himself seem worse than he actually is mm. which yeah, just underlines the tragedy of his whole story, really, and how he comes to fall to the dark side in the first place. And it is amazing that this story got told, like, especially in this format. So I really feel like this story could be, like, as I've said, like a novel or even a TV series or a film. So when you're reading this and how you feel about it, are you taking the rise of Skywalker and the character's kind of resolution into account or are you able to compartmentalise it a little bit more? <sighs> um, I'm able to compartmentalise it to some extent. I, I do take it into account, I think. And to me, the way that I marry them together is this story it just completely underlines how tragic Ben's whole life is basically you know which i know is very difficult for a lot of people because they love this character so much and it's so heartbreaking where he ends up but yeah like it's just layer upon layer of sadness and tragedy to be honest yeah see this is where i'm kind of struggling and it's again it's just cursey overthinking star wars <laughs> i get depressed if i think about it too much Aww. because he should have been able to break the cycle of the trauma for this families generations of trauma and manipulation from this one character that's what it gets to at the rise of skywalker it's revealed haha palpatine was there all along he didn't die and it, the thing is it's not just about loving ben solo it's all of the skywalkers it makes me so sad for luke it makes me so sad for han and leia this was their only child yeah and uh, I, I don't know it's We'll get into it when we talk more about like what happens throughout the story, but it is, as you say, layers upon layers of tragedy because 
everything that Luke built, um, everything between Han and Leia, their marriage was ripped apart because of it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. <laughs> and I think there's this whole structure and like repeated theme in this story where it's constantly about paths and paths not taken and paths that go both ways and how you can choose which way you go. And one of the things I appreciate the most about Charles Soule's storytelling is how he has empathy for Ben and why Ben keeps on making bad choices while also alongside showing his bad choices, also showing his kind choices and his merciful choices because it's not as simple as okay, he's bad now, he's making all bad choices. It's like, well, yeah, he's going down a bad path, he's not going in the right direction, but he still has those good aspects to himself. They're not totally gone, and he keeps on like doing things. Like He could kill his friends outright and shoot their ship down, but he takes out their engine instead so that they can't follow him because, really, he wants to protect them just as much as he wants them to leave him alone. And... Yeah, there's all this stuff dealing with the psychology of being Ben Solo and having to carry that legacy of the Skywalkers on your shoulders and what that means and just how unbearable that pressure is and how ultimately it just kind of breaks him. And yeah, like for me, it answers a lot of questions, but it also raises a lot of new ones. But it does that in a good way because it's a way that feels organic and natural like, I understand this character in a new way now, but I also want to understand even more about him so that I have more context for this as well. Yeah. I think a, a lot of that stuff when he's talking about how he feels like he's been told all along that he's special and he doesn't feel he doesn't want to be special. Um and that's kind of what pushes him to make something nude for himself or at least like that's what he believes he's doing and Ren's kind of goading him on that. Um that to me is you know that's something that we've talked about since the force awakens and in that very first scene he's confronted with the weight of the legacy that he has um and of course it's not just related to his parents but his grandfather as well this is again sorry i know i sound like a debbie downer and i really should stop talking about the rise of skywalker but i can't because the themes seem incompatible to me because Mm. Maybe they're trying to say something here that I just can't recognise, but when you you have this character who is not just weighed down by legacy, his entire life goes down a certain path because of it. Yeah. And in a literal sense, because he is literally targeted by Palpatine because of his name. It's because he was the Skywalker, because of who his grandfather was. And he says that, you know, like, I'm going to throw you down this pit because your grandfather did that to me. Yeah. You, you're falling, the last Skywalker... You can't, in my opinion, and this is exactly what they've done, so I guess you can do it, it just doesn't seem effective to be. <laughs> you have the weight of the legacy destroying this character's life, and then you give it to this other character as a prize for being good at the end, and that she's earned it because she's been loved by this family. It's very strange to me, because you have it handed with these comments from the story group, like, oh yeah, we wanted the Skywalker to be the metaphor of the story that it's like anyone can become a Skywalker. And it's like, do you just mean protagonist or hero? Mm. Because you had an actual Skywalker in the story where you were tr- you seemed like you were trying to say something. And Charles Saul is definitely saying something here yeah. about the weight of that legacy and how it crushes Ben Solo and, and has the wider ramifications, as I said, of destroying the entire family. But 
it seems to be that that's okay because in the end someone else comes along and takes the name yeah i I think the contrast is that charles soul he sees the skywalker name as a curse and jj abrams and the story group apparently see it as some sort of like gift or blessing and yeah i think that's where the dissonance lies but that's what i don't understand because jj himself seemed to view it as a curse in the force awakens when again we're coming back to like questions of intent and how much was kasdan's role versus jj's but like if you create a character like kylo you give him the name kylo which is half skywalker half solo and and you have him in this state of misery and feeling like he has to go down this path because that's what his grandfather did i i don't i just cannot reconcile it in my mind and people are probably like very sick of hearing me talk about this because it's unfortunately it's shaping everything now for me like i'm trying to enjoy this series and i did enjoy this series i'm not saying i didn't but it's impossible for me now to annex it from what the overall story is saying yeah and it's just so depressing Mm. they just made this character suffer his entire life he gets a second of happiness at the end and it's not just about him because we have ray as his other half who then goes on without him his entire family died trying to save him and then he dies i just and not just that they died trying to save him but they lived what a few years of peace and it wasn't even that it was a lie because palpatine was there in the shadows all along just biding his time yeah (laughs) sorry i feel like every week i'm gonna rant about this now because i just don't understand you shouldn't apologize kirsty it's our podcast and you can rant and complain about whatever the heck you want so never apologize for that because i know what you mean yeah i really love this comic and we're gonna get into it more because i've uh, it's so beautifully done and it's what I want for this character and you know we joke about how Ben Solo is baby and Ben Solo did nothing wrong <laughs> but this comic he actually does nothing wrong yep. until the very end where he feels like and this is the tragedy right every step of the way Ben Solo feels like it's too late yeah so I don't know it, it just makes me laugh how even at the end he finally joins the Knights of Ren because he's like, yay, I want to have friends and we're going to travel the galaxy and be best buds. And then it's like, wait, do you guys kill people? Like you actually have this shocked Pikachu face, big close up of beautiful Ben Solo, baby innocent boy being like, but Ren, you said you were going to let them go. He doesn't even realize that the Knights of Ren are going to kill people. Yep. And he's expected to do that too. Yep. He, he just wants some friends. <laughs> it's kind of charming like and also really sad because <laughs> nothing about his fall is political in any way and this is what's really interesting because i thought this was clear in the force awakens and i'm sure you did too that ben's choice to be part of the first order isn't really anything to do with the first order itself yep absolutely like throughout this comic he doesn't the first order isn't mentioned as far as i can tell he's not he doesn't know about them. They're not at all a factor in his fall. There's not a single political discussion. They make a point of showing that he's never heard of General Hux until Snoke mentions him and he asks, like, who the hell's that? Yep. He doesn't join the First Order for their politics. He doesn't reject Leia for her politics. His fall was never about that. And it's very interesting because it's such a contrast from Anakin's fall because Anakin did fall for personal reasons and that he wanted to save Padme, but he also had some notion of empire and wanting control Ben just wanted love and approval and it makes me feel a little nauseous. <laughs> like this comic is great. It reminded me of why I love Ben Solo and what makes that character so fascinating to me. 
because his struggle is just totally personal. It's purely about his personal struggles and like his inner pain and how that is the engine that motivates essentially all of his decisions. It's not about having like any sense of like higher purpose. It's just about feeling that hurt and that rejection and that sense of inadequacy and not being good enough and not being able to satisfy the expectations of this legacy and that driving his decisions. And it's it's like he's driven by the absence of something rather than the presence of something. And yeah, sorry, I just reminded myself why I'm sad about Ben. <laughs> yeah, because we, you know, there's, as I said, there's not a single political discussion. Mm. So there's interesting exchanges between him and Ty and of course the the inverse, the foil there with Ren um, in terms of like... <laughs> caving to your id or having some conscience inside you like he he knows that he's a good person ty is like beseeching to ben it's like i know you're a good person don't do this and ren is like very much the id of like you know follow your shadow be hedonistic you live, live that kind of lifestyle do do what you want yeah you don't owe anyone anything and that is of course that is going to appeal to a young man who feels directionless right yeah no so exactly it's like he's being he's being radicalized yeah. Um, but it just really struck me because I always felt, like I said, that his fall was for personal reasons. But I expected almost some level. And I'm not disappointed that we didn't get this because it enriches my understanding of the character. But I kind of took it for granted that at some point Ben would kind of say something dismissive about the current political structure, like the, the New Republic. He would say something questioning his his mother's choices as as a senator or... Do you know what I mean? I know there's exactly nothing. what you mean. There's no, yeah. there's no acknowledgement of any of that, which is really interesting to me because it's just not a factor to him, or at least it's not explored here. He doesn't resent the way things are politically. He yeah. goes to Snoke because he's a trusted elder figure and he has, he feels like he has nowhere else to go and Snoke's been the voice inside his head all this time. Yeah. Um, it's not because he sees Snoke as the, the leader of the First Order or anything. Yeah. No, because there's a really significant moment in the first issue where the droid on Ben's ship is like, oh, should we go to Hosnian Prime to your mother? Mm. And you can just see him thinking about it and you can see this longing for his mother. And it doesn't explicitly state this, but I think what you also see in that panel is him feeling, no, it's too late. I can't do that. I'm too bad. I'm not good enough. And... (laughs) He could have gone. Yeah, he could have gone. It absolutely breaks your heart, doesn't it? And yeah. then you obviously get the contrast between that option of parental like love and reassurance and him going to Snoke instead, which is his substitute for that. And it's clearly his substitute because Snoke has been this voice in his head since he was a little boy because Charles Soule makes a point of showing that. And yeah, yeah the presentation of that is so fascinating as well because... When you have Snoke speaking to Ben's mind when he's on that mission with Luke and Lorsanteca, Snoke isn't saying, Oh, come to the dark side, little one, oh, have cookies. Like, he's just talking to Ben like a friend, you know, and it seems quite benign and innocuous, but that's obviously how Snoke got in. He's being groomed. Yeah, exactly. He's grooming. Okay, him. And it's important to note that in, the, in case anyone hasn't read it, the first issue, Ben is a child. So in the older issues, he's older, but this part, like when Snoke's talking to him in the ship and he's off on missions with Luke and Snoke's kind of undermining and kind of encouraging Ben to feel a little more disillusioned and resentful towards Luke, 
he's a child. He's been groomed from an early age. And it's... I don't know. It's quite hard to read, honestly. Yeah. No, it really is. And that's a story that is obviously alluded to, but is not explored in depth. So I would expect that we're going to get more storytelling along those lines. And again, it, I can't help but question the personhood of Snoke here and like... Because <laughs> at the end, obviously, in issue four, when you're seeing Ben's actual fall, when he's, you know, manipulating his crystal and making his new lightsaber... Well, not new lightsaber, but he's adapting the lightsaber for the cross guard and everything. You see the other characters in his life. Leia senses his fall. Ray senses it. Um... So we get a nice nod to the dyad there, which is confirming many a Raylo headcanon that they were connected before they met and sensed each other. Um, but we see Palpatine there too. So yes, the the story here is that Palpatine was orchestrating it all all along. But the whole thing with Snoke, I'm trying to work it out because that that last panel there with Palpatine says yes okay this is in line with what the rise of skywalker tells us but then there's a bit is it in the first or the second issue where he goes to snoke and um he says oh what did luke skywalker do to you what did master skywalker do and the implication is that luke is the one who scarred him Mm, yeah that's issue one okay so he says that implying that he has met snoke before and that snoke didn't look like that before but fast forward to the Rise of Skywalker and you've got the Snokes in the jars. <laughs> Aren't they old and scarred like Snoke is? Yeah, they are. <laughs> I was just trying to work out, like, maybe that first issue was written without... Maybe it was written and Charles Saul hadn't seen the Rise of Skywalker, didn't know what was going on in it. And then once they had the Snokes, it was like, oh, okay, well, it's too late. Let's push that. But we're going to put Palpatine in the last one. Yeah, I definitely prefer the angle that Luke scarred Snoke. So I'm just going to isn't that a cool to story? I want it. Yeah, the Skywalker and that friend. I know this is the Ben Solo comic, but it was also pretty cool to see Luke in his prime. Yeah, no, exactly. Facing off the Knights of Ren and being all confident. Yeah, because this comic it really makes me want to see the story where Luke discovers that this malevolent presence has been talking to his nephew and goes and hunts it down and scars that motherfucker you know i really (laughs) want to see that yeah like give me that like retributive justice story especially because that would be really interesting for luke as well because i imagine that would be a challenge to him he would feel so angry and disturbed by that and i think he would really lay it into snoke he's not going to be all peaceful and kumbaya when he's attacking snoke in that moment yeah, and he must have told Leia about it to an extent, right? Because in The Force Awakens, she's saying to Han, no, it was Snoke. So yeah. she's aware of him. Not exactly. aware of him being Palpatine, I guess. But Another question for another time. <laughs> <laughs> so we're just going to segue from the more general discussion into issue by issue, just because there's so much. And I want to try and make sure that we hit the major beats of this because, yeah, there's just a lot to say. And with issue one, it opens with Ren in some indefinite time in the past. And he's got these two young men cornered. And he's basically offering one of them the opportunity to join the Knights of Ren. And he makes them a very interesting sales pitch, which basically embodies what the Knights of Ren are all about. Which is interesting because they're so ill-defined in the films that it's up to Charles (laughs) Soule to provide that definition. (laughs) So according to the comic, 
The wren doesn't stop to worry about what it's burning, or right or wrong, or the goals it might achieve. The wren just is. It lives, and it consumes, and it doesn't apologise. In its nature, and nothing else. I believe in that principle on a deep, deep level. In fact, I've dedicated my life to it. And yeah, I really love this because to me that just like betrays how completely empty their philosophy is. Oh, it is. It's just mindless violence. But I I do think there are interesting things said here about toxic masculinity and how this would be appealing to someone like Ben. Oh yeah, absolutely. And even in this prologue, which it isn't explicitly about Ben, but it establishes the choice that he's going to have to make and the pathway to joining the Knights of Ren. You have this situation where Ren wants to recruit this young man who shows false sensitivity, but his friend or brother, I'm not sure which, he literally kills the other person because he knows that the Knights of Ren require a good death and that's obviously not good enough for them. They have no interest in recruiting him, so they just kill him and nothing is achieved. Well, they try to pretend they live by some sort of code as an excuse to just commit all these random acts of violence. Yeah. Exactly. And I think just showing that friend turning on friend, brother turning on brother, that just underlines how toxic this philosophy is and like how brutal violence it can inspire can be. Edgy. <laughs> Very edgy. I feel like they'd have like a line of t shirts and hot topic and stuff. It's and, yeah, yeah. bring in the, the fight club Tyler Durden vibes. Exactly. <laughs> Let's go find something to burn. <laughs> I love that. That sounds like you're doing a West Country accent, Kirsty. <laughs> they are like pirates. <laughs> you're making me feel at home. <laughs> Clearly, Ren wants people to be very impressed with him, but not to give off the impression that he cares about what anyone thinks, of course. Yeah, he's far, far above that. By the way, okay, my fan cast for him, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, probably. It, he is like Geralt from The Witcher. Oh my right? god, you're so right. He really is. Henry yeah. Cavill fan cast. Okay. Oh my god, yeah. Wow, that would be a really, really hot ship. <laughs> god, <laughs> can you imagine? That's kind of who I was picturing. I mean, the art's amazing. Um, but yeah, I, I, just the character design is very striking in this comic. Yeah. Like, I hate to say it, but Ren is very sexy. Almost disquietingly sexy. It's like, is that an unofficial requirement to be the leader yeah, of the Knights of Ren? it's the rule. You have to be... Very attractive underneath that ugly mask. <laughs> like, one question though, like, to me, it looks like Ren is wearing sort of like a ripped up t shirt that sort of like clings to his like chest muscles. Is that <laughs> the impression that. that you got? Like, I don't understand what he's wearing. It's just strange yeah, I don't to me. Know. <laughs> I feel like that might be a comic book thing that's just passed me by. So. Yeah, it's strange because to me, it almost seems like hypersexualized, but I don't know if that's the intent. <laughs> I feel like comic book artists and Will Sliney did an amazing job on this series, oh, he did. just to be clear, he's very talented. But there is just something very weird to me about the way com- muscles are drawn in comics. It's a bit creepy and It's so over the top and you can see it even like in that final bit where you, you get Ben himself shirtless. Ooh, yeah. It should be so attractive, but it's just really not. <laughs> well and I think it's probably just down to personal preference, but yeah, he doesn't he doesn't really look like Adam Driver's Kylo there to me. I don't think that's the Warsaline's fault because his his facial expressions are spot on. Yeah. But um yeah, there's I think there's just something about the comic book style that's like very exaggerated. Yeah. So then we transition from like that proposal from the Knights of Ren 
into the just the, the immediate aftermath of the temple on fire, essentially, and Ben being confronted by three of his friends slash classmates, and their Henix, Vo, and Ty, Ty being the most important. <laughs> um, and yeah, they're just all shocked and baffled at what's happened. And yeah, like this is a really interesting choice in terms of where to start out the story because it does start out with Ben being particularly unlikable and confrontational and shouty and just being like, I'm better than all three of you put together and just proclaiming how powerful he is. And the best part of it for me is that then the rest of the comic and the future issues of the series, they all go on to deconstruct that and show where that's coming from and all these vulnerabilities and frailties that he's hiding with that display, basically. Yeah, I think it's clear here that he's so shocked and confused by what just happened and for good reason, because it's still not clear what happened. Um, I mean, his uncle, from his perspective, just tried to murder him, right? Yeah. So he's feeling very defensive. He's trying to understand why Luke would do that. So it it has to be because everyone's jealous of his power, right? Yeah. Um, And yeah, he these other um, Padawans come back they, they were off planet when all of that happened so they come back and they're demanding questions of him and he he's panicking so he's just trying to cope and that does kind of create this kind of mask of arrogance yeah she can't state it enough how distressed ben is in that moment because that's the ultimate betrayal to have this person who's essentially been a second father to you and brought you up since you were a little boy attempt to kill you you know, there's no stronger statement of rejection than that. So I think his anger and his insolence need to be understood in that framework. Yeah. And it it also makes me wonder, because again, coming back to the Rise of Skywalker and this idea that Palpatine's behind it all, like how much is he able to manipulate? Mm. Because, I mean, was he manipulating those visions in Luke's head to make him then go and confront Ben? Um, is he manipulating Ben's perception of what's going on now so that he is kind of playing into this arrogant personality? Like, how much of what we're seeing is genuinely unfiltered these characters versus the manipulations of this other figure who they're not even aware is there at the moment? Yeah. Because it just seems like everything is orchestrated by Palpatine. Exactly. There's something quite heartbreaking about thinking that the only time we see the true Ben, the Ben who's uninfluenced and purely himself, is that Ben in like the last five minutes of The Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty heartbreaking. But it's interesting to see how this plays into his dynamics with these characters as the series goes on, because Vo, as it comes in later, she has this like insecurity where she's always comparing herself to Ben, presumably because he's luke skywalker's nephew right so it's like this understanding of the skywalkers as abnormally powerful but luke actually refutes that to he's, he's, he's like ben isn't stronger than you it's just about you connecting to the force and feeling it flow through you yeah so it, it does have some interesting ideas about power and whether it can be inherited or if it's just about how you feel about yourself and opening up to it yeah what so what do you feel about those three characters Kirsty. So we obviously have um, Hanix, who's a male Quarren, Vo, who I have described as girl with white hair, and <laughs> Ty, who I've described as bold man slash Ben's ex-boyfriend. 
I want to know more about all of them. Yeah, they're really interesting. Yeah, they're established in a really compelling way, but of course we don't get much of them because they're not the focus. It's like they're all there as foils to Ben. So I think it's interesting that Henix is presented as this humorous, like light-hearted, but also serious too, but it made a point of that he has this amazing sense of humour because Ben really doesn't seem to. Yeah. Like there's the part where... I can't remember what it is later on when he does join the Knights of Ren or at least is like going along with them and he doesn't realise that they're joking or something. And it, it does seem very Ben Solo to me to like be just kind of panicking and taking things seriously when you shouldn't. Yeah. But I, I, it makes me wonder like how did that play into his relationship with Han? You know? Yeah. Um, so I think all of these characters are set up really well to be foils to Ben because um, Ty is obviously functioning as like a a conscience for him. Yeah, he's the good angel sat on his shoulder, isn't he? Yeah, and he is, he appears to know him better than anyone else here at the Academy, maybe even more than Luke himself, I don't know, to be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll get into it later, but I, there are some unfortunate implications around the choices with Vo, but um, yeah, I, in general, I would just like to see more of it, because even when you get to the, like, the flashbacks of them as small kids, there are so many other characters there in the background, and i just like to see see more of them. Yeah. And this is why I want a young Ben Solo animated series. Yeah, because that has, you know, that could have really interesting implications for Luke's arc too. Yeah. All of these kids were important to Luke. And I just, I would like to see more of why that was. Yeah, no, 100%. Yeah, I think it's just so telling here that as angry as Ben seems, it's, he's not interested in fighting them at first. He just really wants to just be left alone. Yeah. To exactly. kind of process what's happened. And they, obviously they won't leave him alone because they, they're demanding answers. Yeah. It's completely understandable. But it just escalates and you feel that tragedy. And he's he really does not want to hurt them. I think that's the key thing to take away from this point. He's saying last chance, you know, he really does not want to do this. Yeah. There's so many crossed wires in this story. It's, yeah, like some sort of Greek tragedy in terms of all the misunderstandings and misapprehensions that are going on. Um... So yeah, like Ben like manages to lose them after shooting their engine out, like I mentioned earlier, and he goes to Snoke on the most bizarre planet. It's like this botanical garden, basically, and Snoke looks like he went through a hippie phase and he still has all the outfits and there's some very questionable fashion choices going on with Snoke in this. Um, and yeah, there's just really disturbing stuff going on with Snoke embracing Ben and just providing solace to him that he clearly craves and it's just the most heartbreaking thing in the world because it's obviously the last place that he should be trying to find solace in but he does feel like he has nowhere else to go at this point he feels completely rejected by his family and also I think perhaps more importantly not good enough for his family I think it's that sense of inadequacy and not being like a good son and a good pupil that is ultimately the kicker that leads him into Snoke's arms yeah literally and he does kind of look a child because of the height difference there yeah I do love that choice to make Snoke like eight feet tall or nine feet tall whatever it was because obviously Adam Driver is quite physically imposing but that visual of him having this mentor who does make him look like a little child that's just a great choice is it at all clear to you whether Ben destroys the temple or not? 
I very much got the impression that he did not. Me too. Yeah. I don't know what the intent is. Maybe it's just meant to be ambiguous. I think so. Yeah, because we do see Ben being blown back by the explosion. And then he looks at it and he's clearly like baffled and confused. So I think if he did cause that explosion, it wasn't voluntary on his part. He didn't want to blow the temple up. He's clearly very shocked and horrified by what's happened. So, yeah, it's just another facet of the tragedy. And he does claim responsibility for it later, but this comic repeatedly shows that he claims responsibility for things he didn't do. So Mm. I don't think we can take that seriously. Yeah, I I don't know. I just think it's something, again, that is kind of set up so that it plays into your existing perception of the character. Okay. Probably by by design. I mean, don't you think? Because it's wouldn't you give a definitive answer otherwise? Because this is where we thought we were going to get the definitive answer to that. It's posed in the Last Jedi, and then I don't know if you choose to present it somewhere else. Yeah, you're thinking that it's going to challenge that. Yeah, like I I did really feel it was pretty clear in this that he did not do it, but that could easily be my bias talking, you know, because obviously I'm in the bias perception of like wanting him to be relatively innocent of these things. So it makes sense that I would see it in those terms. I, it's not literally stated he did not do this, but just the way it's presented, I didn't see him as being responsible at all. I'm not sure what I wanted, because obviously I love the character as much as you do, and I, I, from the beginning I was pretty certain that he was going to be redeemed, but it wasn't like I had to see him be innocent of all of these things in the past. Of course, yeah. It's just interesting to me, because like you, I read it and was like, oh, so he didn't destroy the temple, but I've noticed that... Um, like members of the story group on Twitter and that they've been kind of evasive about whether it is his fault or not even after the issues have come out oh wow okay I I hadn't seen that right so I'm just wondering what their goal there is like whether it is meant to just be this thing that fans debate (laughs) Um, and whether it is meant to be the whole from a certain point of view thing Ah, (laughs) bloody Star Wars (laughs) so frustrating oh my god I I don't think they want to give us straightforward answers to things yeah okay so let's move on to issue two i do like this first interaction (laughs) yes (laughs) he's just humoring him it's so nice yeah so to clarify what kirsty's referring to snoke starts the issue out by saying do you like this place ben and ben's like it's interesting snoke (laughs) wait it's dot 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 it's it's uh interesting yeah and like interesting is the ultimate adjective to use when you want to be polite but you really don't like a thing (laughs) (laughs) it's like oh you good boy you're trying but you're not doing a great job maybe not that he even just doesn't like it he just doesn't know what the correct answer is (laughs) like whatever you want me to say yeah No, I think that's probably more plausible. <laughs> I just find it more funny to think that he's like, oh, it's gross. Yeah, I think he's just out of his depth. Yeah. No, 100%. That's pretty much his status quo throughout this whole thing. Yeah, and you basically get more like pop philosophy stuff going on from Snoke, where he's all <laughs> trying to like sell Ben on like these silly like empty philosophies and stuff. And he's like, I'm very fond of it. The people who built it were trying to hold back the dark. That was the entire point, to create an oasis of light here in the great shadow. And yeah, I think Ben doesn't really respond to that. He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> then they get into an interesting discussion about his name. 
Mm, yeah, yeah. That's definitely one of the highlights of these issues. Like, and yeah, there's just lots of pain fuel in these issues, and this is like peak that. Yeah, because I, I think it's interesting that they actually confirm that he is named after Obi Wan. Because yeah. obviously everyone would think that, but um, the fact that he acknowledges that, so he's been told about Obi Wan, he's heard the stories, and seems to resent it that he's this big famous Jedi. Everyone thinks I'm supposed to be him. I never even met him. Mm. And I do like this nod to Solo. Do you know that's not even his real name? He's a lie. Yeah. <laughs> I really love it as well because it's almost like his issues with his name are coming from two different directions. Because on the one hand, the like Ben name, which recalls Kenobi, that has all this baggage with it and all these expectations. And Solo, to an extent, it has baggage and expectations because there's a lot attached to Han Solo just as a character but like Ben also zones in on like the fundamental emptiness of that name and how it just means nothing and it's weird because he's both like rankling against all these legacies and all these expectations suggesting that he wants like the freedom that you'd think a nobody's name like Solo would give him but he's also like really like oh I don't like it it comes from nothing it's all made up it's stupid so again I think that's like a very teenaged adolescent thing because you are quite contradictory in what grieves you and what causes you all this angst you know like you're not necessarily very internally consistent yeah I do think it's interesting that he has this fixation on names Um, Mm. because there's been some debate in fandom in terms of like well Han could have taken Leia's name when they got married he could have been Norgana and Mm. there are nods to Ben's attachment to Alderaan like his ship is named after an old Radian mythological creature. Nice. Um, I just I just like that because it's not like stated explicitly, but you can clearly you you know that he has this attachment to his mom. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and you can just tell from that moment when the droid mentions Leia and the look on his face, how much he loves her and how much he means to him, and yeah, Ooh, just all the feels. Hmm. And yeah, there's a line from Snoke in this encounter where he's like, I was not born Snoke, I became Snoke, (laughs) which is like another thing, like, I don't understand what that means in the context of the Rise of Snoke. Well, it's technically right in that he wasn't born Snoke, he was cloned and God knows how, because is he cloned from an existing being that looked like Snoke but wasn't him, or did... Palpatine literally make him from scratch. Excellent questions, Kirsty. So weird. Anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's move gets, on from that. <laughs> he gets a transmission from General Hux, but it's Brendel, of course, because mm-hmm. this is set before the events of Phasma. Yep. And uh, yeah, they make a point of showing that Ben does not know who General Hux is, which you think he would, right? Yeah. Like, obviously his mum would know who General Hux is, so he is shielded from the political realities right now. Yeah. Shows he's quite sheltered. Yeah, and I guess at this point, the First Order wouldn't be, like, super visible. Mm. But the fact that he has this relationship with Snoke, but still doesn't really know anything about it, is, like, Snoke has obviously chosen to hide those things from Ben and reveal them at a later date once he's gone dark. Yeah. No, it's like, what's interesting about this is you see that Snoke has his fingers in lots of different pies. So he's clearly not betting on one, like, faction completely. And he's just more about getting his tendrils into lots of different things. Because he clearly thinks it's like awesome and great that Ben wants to go off and seek out the Knights of Ren. 
but he's also at the same time caught in the First Order and grown his influence there. And yeah, it's just really interesting. And again, it makes me want to see more stories about all that infiltration and how all these networks were established. And yeah, like when is Ben slash Kaido actually introduced properly to the First Order for the first time? I want to see what that meeting looked like. Yeah, it's all very interesting. And I wonder, like, does Ren have any concept of Palpatine? Or is he just going through Snoke? Mm. I, he seems like too much of a small fry to me to know anything about the Palpatine stuff. But I could be wrong. So I'm sure there will be future storytelling there. But then Ben Solo is considered different. Like, I just think it's really interesting how it's like, oh yeah, you go and hang out with the Knights of Ren. But was the larger plan always for him to kind of take over from Palpatine as presented at the beginning of The Rise of Skywalker? Mm. Like, Was it always his intention for him to become Supreme Leader and usurp Snoke? Yeah. Excellent questions, Kirsty. <laughs> Sorry. For another time! <laughs> I know you don't know the answers, but no, it's just no, that it's this fine. is what it's throwing up to me. It's totally fine. And it is worth stating, and they are good questions, and yeah, I think a good story would answer them. <laughs> And it turns out that he's kind of had this Kylo alias, or at least in his head, he came up with that name when he was younger. And I, I do think it's intentionally meant to be a mix of Skywalker and Solo. Yeah. So as much as he says he hates the name Solo, he's doing the same thing. He's making this name for himself. Yeah. And I love that. I just love the thought of him like doodling like on his little pad and like doing like, Skywalker Solo. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> and then like melding them being like, Kylo. Because, yeah, like, I love that there's this wonderful contrast between the innocence of coming up with a name like that, which is very, like, juvenile and quaint almost. And then that's the name he gives himself to be this fearsome badass, you know. I think that speaks to a lot of the frailties and the contradictions in the character, that he's this evil dark lord, but he has a name that he gave himself as a little boy. And it's all just this, like, pretend, this make-believe that he's indulging in on the larger scale. Definitely. Yeah, Kylo Ren is the mask. Yeah. And yeah, then we have the flashbacks to Ben as a young boy on a mission with Luke in Los Santeca, where they encounter the Knights of Ren for the first time. And yeah, it's just so wonderful to see that relationship between Ben and Luke when Ben was so young, because mm. you can just see that love and that respect and that admiration that Ben had for his uncle. And again, layers upon layers of tragedy, Kirsty. <laughs> yeah, even with yeah. Law Santeca, he's like, don't worry, I'll protect him. It's like, oh, oh. God. <laughs> <sighs> oh, little baby boy, you led so astray. Yeah, like, and even in the dialogue between Ben and Snoke, which they're obviously having in Ben's head, I love how Ben is defending Luke, even then. He's saying, he's an amazing teacher, very strong. I've learned so much from him, but he never seems to want me to use any of it. And yeah, it's just that childish like, frustration, I suppose. Mm. And there's also this lovely little reference from Luke where he says, oh, we might find some weapons. I know you like that. <laughs> and it's like, oh, he really is trying to make Ben happy, isn't he? Yeah, it's very sweet. Yeah, But obviously it is also layered with this tragedy because you know what comes later. Exactly. And I do think it's also sowing the seeds for the understanding that Luke and Ben slash Kylo are such different people in terms of their priorities and how they want to do things. Because Ben is a much more 
like vigorous active person who is interested in combat and fighting in ways that luke isn't well not anymore he was yeah no exactly not anymore like luke is fundamentally a pacifist at this point in the story and that's not a very exciting thing to sell a little boy on you know he's like a lot of children interested in fighting and combat and weapons and yeah i think part of the frustration that snoke fans the flames of is this reluctance on Luke's part to play into that. You know, I think he would just be selling the pacifist angle. Yeah, it makes me wonder what Luke would have been like if he had been trained as a Jedi from a young age. Mm. Because his life went a very different way. And I guess it's the same as Rey, right? If you train them older and they've... I don't know. They've had time to figure things out morally, in a sense. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know where I was going there, but I do think there's a difference between how you look at characters like Ben and Anakin, who are going through these teenage years and feeling rebellious and wanting to get out there and explore, but have the constraints of the Jedi. And um, Luke and Rey were raised very differently. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. And we still need more information about how Luke was as a teacher. So we don't know how strict he was and what sort of restrictions he placed upon his students. So I think that will be very instructive when we do find that stuff out. Mm-hmm. Um. Oh yeah. And you obviously get this very classic moment where Ren takes off the helmet to basically pitch a young Ben on joining the Knights of Ren. So he recognises that this child has this power and I think um, either Charles or Will Sliney on Twitter said that that's a deliberate recall to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade where there's the guy who had the hat before Indiana and he's a bit evil and wicked and malevolent but he's also very charming and he is like offering Indiana that way of life and yeah I just love that callback basically that's the point (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting to me, actually, that Ben isn't given... I mean, he has the helmet there in the in the sense that he puts on Ren's literal helmet, but obviously that isn't going to be his new look. When he is given the makeover is in issue three, he doesn't get a helmet like the rest of the Knights of Ren. Yeah, no, you're right. Is that something that he has to earn? I presume so. He definitely does seem to be like a provisional member at that point. <laughs> so I don't think they're fully convinced that he's um, bad enough for them, yeah. essentially. But you're allowed to wear black. But the yeah. mask comes later. <laughs> Black leather. That's the junior member status. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So then in issue three, we start out with <laughs> um, Kylo Ren finding the Knights of Ren. So we basically skip a bit. So at the end of the previous issue, he's confronted by his classmates after he goes back and finds Ren's helmet. And then at the start of the next issue, we sort of skip that encounter and we see him meeting up with the Knights of Ren. And it's just hilarious because they're sort of in a bar. Some of them are like hanging out with the sexy ladies and flirting. And yeah, it is just this like illustration of a fantasy for a young man. I think like you said earlier, Kirsty. So, oh, look at all the alcohol they're drinking. Look at all this hot chicks and... Yeah, and he's lived this very sheltered, presumably virginal life as a monk in <laughs> Uncle Luke's temple. <laughs> it's like, oh, now I'm going to get a cool new outfit and I'm going to have friends and we're going to travel the galaxy and be really cool. Yeah. 
Like, it's no wonder why it's appealing. You have quite a good dumb sales pitch going on. The structure of this issue is probably my favourite out of the whole series because Mm. it's basically structured so that we see Ben telling an account of his encounter with his classmates. And it's not a true account at all. And it's just so fascinating is this piece of, like, self-mythologising and how he wants to present himself in order to satisfy these people and to become one of them and yeah it's a good illustration of peer pressure yeah that's a good point actually because here we see more of the relationships earlier on between him and ty and vo but it's all from his perspective so for all we know vo actually didn't really resent ben for his power yeah no exactly and I really feel like Ben is very much an unreliable narrator here and it really does seem to be this great like synergy going on, oh god I hate that word, with The Last Jedi in terms of that Rashomon flashback because Mm. it is so so subjective, the account that we're getting of pretty much everything in this issue in particular is not fair and balanced and yeah that's worth bearing in mind basically. Yeah, I guess the difference here is that we only get Ben's perspective. So Exactly, yeah. Maybe we'll get I, that Vaux novel at some point. <laughs> yeah, I do like the portrayal of Henix, and Vaux too, she's great, but um, yeah, Henix when he's like, well, I only know a couple of words of her tease, and he's trying to open this holocron, he's like, <laughs> how do I do it? <laughs> Luke's just looking on with amusement. Yeah. Like, Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Henix seems like a cool dude. Yeah, no, he does. He's like nice and laid back, which I can appreciate. Um, and yeah, I do like that each of them is given these distinctive characterizations. Because um, with Vo, we like get this impression that she's very resentful of Ben's power and this suggestion that Ben just finds everything so much easier than the rest of them because he has that mighty Skywalker blood. And Luke gives her this great speech about the Force being like a door and how everyone's door is open to a slightly different degree, but they can all open fully, like if you apply yourself enough, basically. And that did make me think a bit about that mighty Skywalker bloodline. It's like, do you Mm. really believe that, Luke? (laughs) But yeah, that's going to be a topic that's explored more. That was him talking about how mistaken he'd been. But I guess the question is, at what point did he believe that that blood was important. Yeah, no, absolutely, because my impression is that the whole mighty Skywalker blood thing, he was left completely disavowed of that notion after everything went terribly wrong with Ben, basically. Yeah, but does he believe at this point, like in the comics timeline, does he believe the blood is important? Because, as you said, that's kind of counter to what he's saying there to Vo. Yeah, well, that's the thing. If he did believe it at some point i would imagine it would have to be at this point when he's talking to vo because that's well before ben solo's fall and that would sort of suggest some hypocrisy or self-deception it's also so antithetical to what the jedi believed for generations like that's not what obi-wan would have taught him yeah and I guess there's going to be different ways of it, aren't there? Because believing in mighty Skywalker blood, that doesn't necessarily mean he's speaking untruth to Vo. It might just mean that there is that expectation that you're a Skywalker, you've got a legacy to fulfill and expectations to meet. It doesn't yeah, necessarily guess. mean anything about his Force powers. Yeah, and that is certainly how Ben felt, that he was expected to live his life a certain way. Yeah, 
which is the most important thing. And I, I think that's what Luke felt as well. Like he felt the weight of being the Skywalker of um Yeah. Which in itself is interesting because I don't think until the events of Bloodline the 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 wider galaxy had put the two together and associated him with Anakin, but mm. Or at least with Anakin as Vader. Yeah, no, it's true. They were very much considered separate people. I guess he just felt the expectation of from being the man who stopped the war. No, absolutely. Which is quite a legacy to carry. Yeah. I really feel like Ben's relationship with Ty is the most well-drawn out of all the relationships. And I think that's deliberate because obviously Ty has a very important role in speaking to Ben, especially in the last issue. Um, but yeah, I really like how that's depicted. I'm wondering if the parallels here, it, it seems quite inspired by Aang and Zuko from The Last Airbender. Oh, cool. Yeah, no, I've never seen that series, but like even without having seen it, I can see the visual parallels. So. Yeah, it's obviously incredibly influential. Dave Filoni worked on that, and people have compared Ben Solo to Zuko for a long time now, so having another character here that looks like Aang is just... I don't know, interesting. Yeah. And kind of fulfilling that role as well to the the foil to to Zuko's like broody redeemed self. <laughs> yeah. Could we um just like read out the exchange that I have transcribed in the notes, Kirsty? So I feel like that's a particularly significant one. I'll be Ty and you can be Ben. <laughs> okay. Why do you hide so much about yourself, Ben? I don't know what you're talking about, Ty. I put it all out there. Come on. You know the force helps me sense things. You've got a box inside you where you lock things away. I mean, everyone does, but yours is locked up tight. You know why. I'm Ben Solo. Yeah, but that's exactly it. You need to be who you are. Everyone does. I don't need to know your secrets. No one does, unless you want. But you have to realise that people will accept all of you, just as you are. I know you, Ben Solo. You're not as bad as you think. You sure about that? Don't be afraid of what other people will think. Just... Be who you are. The rest will follow. And yeah, that's definitely one of the more poignant conversations in the comic. Because I think that gets to the root of what Ben can't do. He feels like he can't be who he is. Because I think he feels like who he is really isn't good enough and doesn't satisfy all those expectations that are held of him. And yeah, that's why Ben needs a hug. Yeah, I was thinking about how when he was younger, Ben Solo just wanted to be a pilot like his dad. Yeah. And probably as his force powers became stronger and more evident, maybe he felt like he couldn't make that choice. Maybe that was considered a selfish choice because the galaxy needed the Jedi. Yeah, I could definitely see that being an aspect. And that's just so heartbreaking because that's sort of like, maybe you have some musical gift to play the piano, but you don't really like the piano. And because you have that gift everyone expects you to play the piano and (laughs) to the point where you end up becoming a professional pianist and you hate it (laughs) and I know that sounds a bit silly but I do think that's the sort of like characterization that we're getting out with Ben essentially is someone finding themselves going down this path to the point where there's no return and it's a path that they never would have chosen for themselves if they'd had that free freedom of choice yeah, I'm thinking again of what Leia says in Bloodline when um, she's 
offered some kingdom that she's supposed to inherit and she says no and someone asks her well would your son be interested and she's like oh no ben's not interested in titles Mm. and it seems like such a contrast to him taking up the title of supreme leader in the end yeah but i think it is intentional because you're supposed to see that that's not where ben belongs it's not even what he wanted yeah he didn't even really want to rule the galaxy that wasn't his point he just wanted to be with ray at that point and then things went south so i was like well this is all i've got now (laughs) yeah the galaxy just happened to be the booby prize (laughs) oh dear that poor baby i know yeah and then like in the comic in issue three um the big shocker is that hennix is killed Uh, there's a big fight basically of all four of them um and ben is perceived as guilty by the other two because of hennix's death but we're clearly shown through the illustration the comic that it's not like an intentional murder it's basically ben defending himself and that defensive action is what causes hennix to die and yeah obviously they shouldn't have been fighting in the first place um but it's clearly not that act of evil that the others perceive it to be and again layer upon layer of tragedy guys (laughs) so it's just that misunderstanding and at that point ben isn't willing to defend himself anymore i think he's tired of defending himself and it it almost feels easier to accept others negative perception of him and be like well you think i killed hennix i'm gonna let you think i killed hennix i really do think he starts to buy into that honestly think that ben is and this is i i interpret it as he's coded as someone with depression or at least struggling with that as a susceptibility Mm. and it's so much easier to just kind of feel like you're caving in and yes i'm a bad person and i don't deserve to get better and i don't deserve your kindness mm-hmm. that that kind of is what reminded me th- that uh, exchange with ty like when he's just he's telling him to be himself it's like you're good enough and he just doesn't believe it yeah just rings like empty words to someone in that state of mind yeah, and leaning into the negative perceptions that people might have of you and being like, yeah, I guess that is all I am. Yeah, because he's very eager to accept the sort of claims that Vo makes about him. And that obviously comes through very powerfully in the last issue, which we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah, I think that reminds me of when Ray calls him a monster in The Last Jedi and he says, yes, I am, because he's so used to being perceived that way at this point and how how he reads himself too. Yeah that's part of how he orders his universe at that point is how he makes sense of his world and yeah it's very tragic um on a more light-hearted note the <laughs> issue three ends with ben getting a makeover which is really quite fabulous i think this might be my favorite part yeah it's a really great page <laughs> he just turns up he has the coolest outfit it's really great i hope people cosplay it so it could be the coolest cosplay and yeah this is all precipitated by ren saying the kid looks like trash an actual (laughs) pile of garbage find him some clothes i mean we're the knights of ren we have a reputation (laughs) oh that sums it up doesn't it it's so vacuous and it's just about this aesthetic lifestyle that they lead it's just about (laughs) being being cool and badass yeah it's the hot topic cult it does remind me of some of the concept art in the Force Awakens art book of the young Jedi killer. Yeah. Maybe when they were going to initially tell a story of him falling to the dark side when he was much younger. Yeah. Um, when he joined the biker gang. Yeah, he has like a speeder that looks like a motorbike. 
<laughs> I just I wish that had been kind of put in here somehow. But yes. The outfit, I'll take it, and the the saber strapped to his back as well. Yeah, it's really great. So then, at the start of issue four, we find Ben hanging with his new comrades. And discovering it's not all it's cracked up to be and he's actually expected to do bad things like kill people. And that's very, very sad and worrying. Oh dear. Yeah. Because essentially, Ren is like, okay, I'm going to torture this guy to death so that I can get the information I want. And Ben's like, no, there's another way. And he does the bind probe, which I really liked because that was actually shown as like the merciful option in yeah. that choice in that moment. And that was quite an interesting reimagining of that power which obviously has been coded quite dark and malevolent but in this case it was definitely the better of two evils um and even though he uses it and is successful ren still kills the dude and that is appalling to ben's noble heart and sensitivities and yeah i think that's the point at which he realizes that he is really deep into this stuff and he's not sure that it's for him and that just leaves that crack open that is there to be exploited and yeah then some other stuff happens yeah that panel where you see his shocked face and he says but Ren you said you would release them he's like yeah I did (laughs) I killed them (laughs) Um, I just love that piece of art so much I feel like that really kind of sums up this entire series of like what have I got myself into yeah Um, he's way out of his depth Definitely. And Ren is more than aware of this. He says, You know, Ben Solo, I'm beginning to wonder if you're everything Snoke said you were. If no one ever made it clear to you, the Knights of Ren kill people. Anyone who isn't us is fair game. And you, friend, are running out of time to show me you are, in fact, one of us. So that clarifies that Ben is just a provisional member at this point. Mm. And, yeah. I think it also just underlines that, like, groupthink and, like like the peer mentality that is like leading Ben into darker and darker behaviours as he's desperately seeking acceptance and belonging in this new group. Yeah, they just seem like children and I know they're not. I know Ren is almost positioned as this older figure, but they're clearly living these horrible empty lives, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's really sad. Yeah, so then basically Ben and the Knights of Ren are confronted by Vo and Ty and Vo goes off to fight the Knights of Ren by herself, which is really badass, by the way. She holds her own remarkably well, Um, whereas Ty confronts Ben because he thinks he can reach him still. And early on in that conversation, like there's this interesting exchange where Ben says, how did you find me? And Ty says, through the force, you know, we're connected, Ben. And that made me wonder, hmm, is that like some sort of force bond situation going on with them? But I guess that's just very vague and open to interpretation. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I don't know how it works with like all these kids being trained from a young age together, whether they would be connected a bit more. Yeah, there is discussion about Ty having an, a particularly close bond, a close bond with Ben as well. So yeah. I don't know if it's something that's just unique to them rather than also being something that all the classmates would have yeah i think it does add an extra layer of tragedy because initially you kind of think well ben solo just doesn't have any friends and close relationships and he's completely alone until ray comes along Mm, yeah 
But I think Ray is the one who was truly alone her entire childhood, and Ben did have these relationships. He just didn't believe in himself enough. It's like he didn't feel he deserved them. Yeah, exactly. He never allowed himself to be close to any of these people, or at least not truly close. So I think he did clearly have friends, but he kept on withholding things from them and keeping secrets and... Yeah, probably in large part due to Snoke's manipulation. I was going to say, part of that's probably having a voice in your head telling you not to share things. Exactly, yeah. Which, yeah, it's just heartbreaking. Um, Yeah, and there's really great dialogue going on between Ty and Ben again here. Um, Could I ask you to read out the next dialogue exchange I have, Kirsty, um, which I've highlighted? Do you want me to be Ty? Uh, Yeah, sure. You don't have to do this, Ben. You don't have to turn your back on the light. I am not what you think I am, Ty. It's too late now. This is my path. No, that's wrong. You can just stop. Turn around. Walk the other way. Every path goes in two directions. However deep you think you are, I promise you there's deeper yet. It can get worse. You're acting like you don't have control when every step you take is your own choice. Choice? I have no choice and never did. Even my name isn't a choice. The dark side and the light side both claimed to me for their own the moment I was born. Do you know how that feels? Whether it's Luke Skywalker or Snoke, neither one sees me as a person. I'm just a legacy, just a set of expectations. There's hope. There is always hope. You can start from wherever you are. No path is forever. You could spend the rest of your life helping people, trying to bring more light to the galaxy, and it would all matter. Those people would still be helped. Such a great exchange. Oh, Ty. Oh my god. My man. Yeah, it's so good. And like the the line from Ben that particularly breaks my heart is, neither one sees me as a person. I'm just a legacy. So I think that gets to the core of why Raylo is magic. <laughs> Sorry, I, I had no, I like, I'm such a predictable person to say that. No, it's true. It's really just because Ray, she does just see him as a person as a man and he sees that and responds to that and that's so incredibly powerful for both of them because it's just this fundamentally human connection that transcends their politics and ideologies and it's just about them connecting as people and feeling this connection this emotion for one another and it's so beautiful it is and it's really interesting because like when ray rejects his proposal to rule the galaxy and he feels like well, he he calls her nothing, right? Mm-hmm. But then in The Rise of Skywalker, once he's discovered who her grandfather is and that they're a dyad, it kind of like reassures him that they are on the same level and it's okay and they are supposed to be together. Yeah. He gives him that extra confidence to like propose that again to her um, because he thinks that will be enough. Yeah. Because he's struggled with this feeling of inadequacy his whole life and he feels like, well, if we both have this thing, if we both have the family name and we're both the dyad that's it she can't say no yeah (laughs) she can (laughs) that is one of the more interesting things that the rise of skywalker does definitely because it takes that legacy that ben has always perceived as this burden and at that point it's like okay finally this could be useful to me finally this could serve a purpose because it can help me connect with this woman that i love and yeah it doesn't work that way, baby. <laughs> yeah. In my mind, those choices, as interesting as they are, are still undermined by the ultimate choice for Ray to take the name. Mm, sure. Because I thought, I thought they were going to say something interesting about not being defined by a fancy, impressive-sounding name, but... Um... 
whatevs. Yeah. I think they were just trying to do two different things that just didn't quite work together. Yeah. But I do think it's interesting here that... And he even mentions Snoke to Ty. So I'm like, does Ty know who Snoke is? <laughs> or at this point, is Ben just unraveling and not even like speaking in a way where Ty would be entirely aware of what he means by things? Yeah. I do feel like it's just coming from a place of peak emotion and he's not thinking things through. I don't think Ty knows who Snoke is. Although he might. Maybe there are stories about Luke going to slice up Snoke. So yeah, that's possible. Um, and yeah, then what underlines the tragedy in this is that you can really see that what Ty is saying is reaching Ben, especially the part about spending the rest of your life helping people and trying to bring more light to the galaxy. You can see him really thinking about that and considering that as an option. And then Ren kills Ty and that light is extinguished, essentially. Yeah. And, and you see that on Ben's face on the next page. Mm. Um, after that... Um, Ren says, Snoke was completely wrong about you. You're fighting this every step of the way. And when Ben says, you th think so? He's got this look of such defeat mm. and grief. Like, uh, he's really shocked that Ty's gone, I think. Yeah. I think he's, like, grieving Ty. And I think he's also grieving the possibility of a different choice for himself. So it's like that door... As far as he can, as far as he's concerned, seems to be close to him at that point, because Ty was the only person left who did seem to have any hope for him or any belief that he could be better or make better choices. And so then Ben, he sort of retreats from that completely. That's the thing about Ben. He like ties his sense of identity and self worth to other people. He's externalizing it. So he's like, well, now Ty's gone, and he was the one telling me I could be a good person. So I guess I can't be a good person anymore. Yeah. It's like if you could let him not die in vain, mm. you could still make the right choice now. Yeah. And that's something that persists with Ben until the very end, isn't it? Yeah. Because ultimately, it is Ray. She's the one who's able to help him come back. Because he sees like her perception of him and her belief and hope for him to be better. And also his mother's, but obviously that can't be as prominent for obvious reasons. Yeah, and as he starts to try and prove himself to Ren here, and of course he's crossing the two blue sabres, just like Raiders in The Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. No, there's a really amazing like fight scene between Ben and Ren. Ben and Ren, sorry, that sounds funny. Bill and Ben, Bill and Ben. <laughs> Um, yeah. So here's where we see Palpatine come in. Yeah, no, exactly. Palpatine is just loving it, having a great time. And just sat in his throne on Exegol. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably the most excitement he'd had in years at that point. <laughs> um, and yeah, like there's lots of great dialogue and action and stuff. One of my favourite moments is um, Ben declaring himself to be the shadow, which is obviously like baby's Freudian psychology 101. Mm. Um, and it's also fascinating to me so it is, it's him trying to declare himself something grand and important and primordial but it's also kind of empty it's just as empty as all those as all that philosophising from Ren in the Knights of Ren and yeah it's an attempt I think to like make himself seem something bigger and more important than he actually feels himself to be yeah this yeah it's really emotional this fall here because he's talking to Ren about how other people think he's special and he doesn't and it, a lot of this ties in again to his proposal to Rey in The Last Jedi right these notions of who 
who's special, what makes them special, um, whether he would like to reject that or embrace it. And at this point, he's rejecting it, in my opinion. He Mm. doesn't believe that he's special, but he's choosing to turn that into a positive, in air quotes. He says, that's good. It means I can do anything I want. Mm. Um, So he's under the illusion that here he's finally making a choice, which I don't believe because it's all undermined by Palpatine sat there in the corner. (laughs) Yes, yes, claim your birthright and strike him down. (laughs) So he thinks that he's rejecting legacy, whereas from Palpatine's perspective, he's very much embracing it now. Yeah, it's so hideous. And yeah, I just hate that bastard. I hate seeing Palpatine happy. He's great to hate. Um, And yeah, like perhaps the most important two pages in this entire series is the page where like Ben is attacking Ren and you see in the four corners, it's like a bloody boxing match. (laughs) Like there's Snoke, there's Palpatine, there's Leia and crucially there's Rey. There's a tiny baby Rey. (laughs) And she's not actually a baby. I guess she's like 13 or something in that panel. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a young Ray, and yeah, you can obviously see Snoke and Palpatine feeding off what's going on and relishing it and glorying in it because there's so much dark energy coming off Ben in that moment, and that's precisely what they want. And on the inverse of that, you can see Leia knowing exactly what's happening that her son's falling to the dark side and being like, "Oh God, no, that's awful." And for Ray, she hasn't met Ben, so she just has this nebulous feeling of cold and presumably sadness. And oh my god, it's just horrible. And yeah, I just love that confirmation that Ben and Ray were connected through the Force at this point. That's yeah. really powerful to me. That was like one of the earliest post TFA headcanons, and I really love seeing it confirmed. <laughs> Yeah, it's explored through so many fanfics and I feel like because we get this in canon now, I wouldn't be surprised if it turns out later that Ben, as a 10-year-old or whoever old he was, sensed Ray being born, so she mm. feels the cold and he would feel the warmth. Yeah, oh my god. And I does this that. mean that she then feels cold on Jakku every day after that because Ben is now on the dark side? That's a really good question and a really mm. sad thought. And, yeah. and it also makes me think about what were those 10 years like when Ray wasn't in the world, you know, because presumably there was a sense of connectedness or comfort that came from having that other half of himself in the world somewhere. And did he just feel like a part of him was missing that whole early 10 years? You know, was that like why there was an opening there for someone like Snoke to get in and corrupt him when he was really small? And yeah, there's just all these like what ifs and it's, it's fascinating to me. I love that aspect of the story. Anyway, my one big dislike of this story, but I saw it coming, was that Ben would be the one to murder Vo. Mm, yeah. But to me, that's the one unequivocally evil thing he does in this whole comic series. Because the killing of Ren, Ren is obviously an evil person, and Ren had just killed Ben's friend Ty. So that's understandable and justifiable on several levels. But the killing of Vo is just cold-blooded murder. So there can be no making up excuses for that, really. Yeah, I think there's a degree of projection going on. Like when he says, why do you even want to live? Oh, yeah. It's Ben speaking to, I have nothing left to live for. He doesn't doesn't value her life anymore. I think it's just upsetting to me from a meta perspective because it's seeing yet another black person in Star Wars 
brutally killed and yeah. um a black woman as well that yeah i don't know she just seemed like a really great character and i i hope that she turns up again if they do more earlier years for ben but it's hard for it not to be overshadowed now by knowing that he's the one to kill her yeah no it's really sad and it's horrible to see that character as well be so vulnerable all of a sudden because she had always been like very cocky and strong and she's just helpless in that moment and it's very sad and i do think it's a very deliberate choice to make Vo be the one that he kills rather than someone like Hennix because there is obviously this setup for Vo being the person who was very quick to assume that Ben had killed everyone and had killed Luke Skywalker and she didn't have that merciful attitude to him that Ty did and what you see here is Ben feeding off that and like completely fulfilling Vo's worst perception of him basically so he says of course I did I'm a murderer remember Yep. It's like, yeah, isn't that what you think of me? That I was already a bad guy? Exactly. So he's fulfilling that worst vision of him. And yeah, like, I, I, it reminds me actually of like all the early meta that was going around in Force Awakens times when you see him like screaming and getting enraged when he's looking at Ray and Finn. And mm. there was a lot of talk back then about, well, a lot of that rage is probably coming from that self hatred. And oh, yeah. that grief that he's feeling because he's just killed his father. And yeah, I definitely think this is psychologically coming from a similar place. Yeah, that's why I always hope for things to come a bit more full circle with Finn. Mm. When he screams at him that he's a traitor, I would have loved to have seen a resolution for that in The Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. No, that, that dynamic was sadly underused. It was really crappy. Yeah. <laughs> mm. <laughs> well, they were both right there on the Death Star, I think, after Ray left. I know that we have the scene with Han, but um, I think it would have been really cool to have, once he'd had that maybe, that imaginary conversation with his father if he and Finn had run into each other. And they could have had an interesting conversation, I think, about Leia and how she welcomes people who came from the, the other side and all that. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, yeah, and then the comic basically closes out with Kylo going sort of like Hulk mode shirtless <laughs> and giving into the rage. Yeah, I mean, he's hurting himself. Yeah. Like, there's that part where he, like, he bleeds the crystal, but I I think we're also supposed to understand that that's causing him physical pain and it looks like his hand is bloody as a result. Oh, yeah. You know? No, it's covered Like, I think that, that there's definitely some self-harm coding kind of going on here. Yeah. No, exactly. It's clearly shown to not be a victory moment. You know, like it's him establishing his new identity as Kylo Ren and crafting his like double bla- cross guard lightsaber, but it's not a happy thing and is not something that he's glad to be doing. It's just that feeling of resignation again, yeah. I think. It's like, well, all the other options are closed. There's no more path for me to follow other than this one. So I'm going to embrace this. I'm going to go full dark and aim to meet that expectation of me, that worst vision that everyone seems to have. And yeah, yeah. again, tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy. Yeah, it's definitely not triumphant. I think that last page, he almost looks like he has tears in his eyes. Yeah. Um, I do like that we see Lando when Mm. he's cracking the crystal he has the faces of everyone around him who's meant something to him in his life yeah we see lando but yeah 
Um, obviously, in books like Last Shot, we see Lando and Toddler Ben, but I wasn't sure if they'd kind of stayed in each other's lives, but this kind of seems to suggest that he is an important person to Ben. Yeah, which is really Again, nice. Again, not explored in The Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> <laughs> we also see Chewie, so he's got his uncle yes. Chewie that he's thinking about. <laughs> yeah. And Yeah. Oh, God. It's just, oh, you silly boy. You silly, silly boy. There were so many other alternatives. So many times. No, but again, that that's the tragedy of it, because in theory there were, but it's not that simple. And the brilliance of this comic lies in really helping you to empathise with him and understand why he felt like he didn't have any other choices, even though there potentially were other choices they were closed off for him by all these other forces that were operating within his life from when he was very young and yeah it's just a huge tragedy yep <laughs> the end <laughs> yeah i mean it is because as we've pointed out before he gets like a few seconds of happiness with ray at the end and then he's taken away from her yeah we, we see in this comic that they were connected from before they even met and that's all they get together. Yay. <laughs> Be grateful for small mercies, Kirsty. Oh, we get a nice little glimpse of him. Isn't that lovely? It's <laughs> my Michelle Rajwan impression. Yes. <laughs> well, because I think even the novelization, it really drives home that it's like, oh, they were finally together. They were on the same side. He'd been redeemed. Like, Ray felt like she was finally home. Mm. Uh, and then, oh yeah now i feel like i'm missing half of myself he's gone star wars star wars star wars star wars you know even with this comic it's like yes this is the rise of kylo ren but because of how connected ray and kylo are and because of the positioning of him as the antagonist within the story of her as very much the protagonist you can't help but contextualize this as part of ray's story too right so all of this was going on without her technically knowing about it but it very much is shaping her life and that of course was her grandfather manipulating all of that yeah exactly it has like many ramifications for other characters beyond ben and even his immediate family yeah so yeah really really great comic series and i can't recommend it enough and really the overriding thing i'd say is i really hope to god that charles Sol gets to write more kylo ren slash ben solo because he's damn good at it and we know he writes novels. He's writing one of the High Republic novels. So I really hope he writes a Ben Solo novel at some point because that would be like a must read that would like shoot to the top of my list, I think. Oh, definitely. Um, and the art was really impressive as well. And Will Sliney is working on the Rise of Skywalker comic adaptation as well. So I'll be interested to see how things from that come out. Oh, awesome. That's really great. I didn't realise he was doing that one. So mm-hmm. yeah, that would be really great to look forward to. Mm-hmm. okay awesome so it's easter happy easter everyone i know we didn't do that at the outset um and i know kirsty has to go to a picnic which is very nice um i've been celebrating with the it's in my of- back garden to clarify i'm staying home yeah a socially distanced <laughs> picnic let's be clear and i've been celebrating on my lonesome with lots of chocolate to oh, make i'm up. jealous i don't have any chocolate oh no yeah like I, it's still i still feel like it's unusually cruel that americans don't get chocolate eggs it's like Ah. They have no. They have other like they have cream eggs, mini eggs, lid okay. bunnies. But I cannot find like the hollow Easter eggs. Mm. And I, I said to my husband this morning, like, oh, I kind of wish I had an Easter egg. And he was like, well, we could boil some up. Like he genuinely thought I was my eggs. Oh no! 
Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's hilarious. Oh, and I just remember I had one last year because you brought me one to I Chicago. I know. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's like, Thank you. That the, was really nice. I'll just have to visit you every year in the future. <laughs> <laughs> it probably delivery. wouldn't fare well in the mail, so. Yeah, no, it's true. It it would be a bloody miracle if a chocolate egg survived <laughs> the postage system. Um, but yeah, happy Easter to everyone. I hope everyone's having a good um, celebration like with loved ones as much as possible while maintaining social distance. Very important. Mm. And yeah, I'm going to certainly hope that Kylo Ren will rise in other ways. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> From the dead, just to be clear. Somehow, Ben Solo has returned. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah, I'll take it. I don't care how implausible and stupid, just <laughs> somehow Ben Solo's returned. That's great. Okay, so it's time to sign off for this week. I'm Rachel, and you can find me on Stars Nonsense on Tumblr. I'm Kirsty, and you can find me at Bastila Bay on Tumblr. And you can find both of us on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Until next time, bye! Bye! <laughs> <laughs>